Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, December the 20th, 843-661-0937. I'm flying solo in uh, in Studio A. Freehold is in Studio B. Royal Rev of Radio is not with us today. Had a, um, a family matter, a planned family matter to take care of. He will not be with us today. So um, we'll do the best we can. Instead of having three here, having two here. Um, is somebody already on the phone? Okay, somebody got up bright and early. Let's go to the phone. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Roger. You know, I'm always up early, Ken. <laughs> you are, as long as I can remember. <laughs> you know, I, I'm up, I've been up since you've been up, you yeah. know, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> I, I just wanted to clarify a little bit that I talked about yesterday with the with the possible ticket. I wasn't trying to say at all that uh, Nikki Haley would be better necessarily in the office than, uh, than uh, DeSantis would be. Uh, but it's all about winning. You've talked about that before. Uh, Nikki's problem is winning the nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I do believe, you know, you got 40, don't go Democrat. You got 40, 40, and you got to get the middle 20%. I just think Nick, Nikki at the top of the ticket is a better ticket to win a general election. Now, that's totally different than getting the nomination. Her first deal is to is to get the nomination. And, you know, DeSantis has probably been more conservative, you know, overall than than Haley is, you know, on everything. And Haley, like you said, you made a good point after I hung up that she's tried to have it both ways. And she has a lot of times tried to have it both ways. Uh, DeSantis, I'm afraid, with suburban women, is going to be too closely tied to Trump's politics. I think Haley may may have the same views on things, but she's a little more articulate, and she's going to appeal to those to those suburban women and, and the middle more than DeSantis will. That's just my thoughts. Um, and, and like you said, if you, if the Democrat Biden or whoever he or she is goes back in, you've lost anyway. So what difference does it make? Um, so that's just what I was trying to sure. say, and I think you pr- probably agree with yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's well explained. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. You know, there's a there's kind of a balance. There's some sort of an equilibrium that the majority of us. I mean, what I believe in, what I stand for, I wish what I wish to be true, and and where reality is. And and Roger makes a very valid point when you look at a national election. And you're talking about independent voters. You're not talking about folks who listen and call it a tall radio shows at 6.05 in the morning. That's just not who you're, you're talking about. Um, we would be a more studious universe of, of voters. I mean, we are a little bit more informed. I didn't say we're any smarter. We're more interested. I mean, that really and truly is the, the motivating criteria for primary voters. Seem to, they seem to be a little more interested in what's going on in the politics. Democrats have their, um, their, their their most passionate base. Republicans have their most passionate base. And, and out of that comes primary performance. Um, the, the one thing you can never underestimate in politics is do I like you? Can I relate to you? Um, Ron DeSantis is going to sound a lot like Trump. I mean, he's an aggressive, conservative Republican. Um, there seems to be an appetite for an aggressive Republican conservative in the primary. Right now, the American, excuse me, the, 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 yeah, the American political right doesn't have a lot of sympathy for those who say, whoa, slow down a little bit. Let's behave here. Let, let's work within the bounds of the way we've always done things. And I'm talking about the Mitt Romneys of the world, um, the John McCain's, the late John McCain, um, 
there's a certain decorum, a certain uh, process required for us to get to to a better place. We have a, a very rambunctious primary voter in the Republican Party today. I mean, we don't. We it's the same in the in the Democrat Party. We're just not as aware because we don't keep tabs on the Democrats in their primary process as much as we do uh, the Republicans. I do believe that come spring of the year, let's say January, February, is kind of political hibernation. I mean, I've always called those two months hunker down months. I mean, I spent too much over the holidays. You know, the bowl games are gone. Football's gone. I mean, January and February are just times of the year I hunker down, uh, you know, kind of exist to live, live to exist. And then March gets here. And we begin, you know, the the, the beginning of spring. Um, we look forward to summer. And, and that's when you really start seeing things intensify when it comes to politics. I think DeSantis, I mean, I know this to be true. I know DeSantis has people on payroll not working in the Florida governor's office. I know that Nikki has hired people that um that aren't cutting her lawn at Hilton Head. I mean, I'm sure of that. I know that to be true. Now, how much of that has been publicly disclosed? How much of that is uh, exploratory work? How much of that is um, testing the waters, polling? I, I don't know that, but I do know both of those people. I mean, they're, they're unannounced. They're, they're major figures in the political part. It's kind of interesting to me. Because I had a front row seat at Nikki Haley um, becoming, you know, the governor of South Carolina. Nikki and I ran in 2010. And I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. And then we'll get to some other things here. So Nikki is running against Andre Bauer, Gresham Barrett, um, Henry McMaster. Those would have been the three primary. Larry um, Larry Grooms of Berkeley County was running. Larry's a senator um, who I got to know fairly well. Um and, and we'd have these events. I mean, we'd have a parade in Chapin. We'd have a, you know, a silver elephant in Columbia. We'd have a, a first Tuesday in Greenville. We'd have a, uh, you know, an economic development summit in, in Charleston. I mean, we'd all be at the same things uh, for the same reason. So I had an up-close and personal look for about 16 or 18 months at Nikki Haley uh, being kind of an also-ran the gubernatorial race. Sarah Palin, that was Sarah Palin's apex. Sarah Palin and the Tea Party had never been more prominent in Republican politics until that day. I mean, I could argue easily if there's a graph that charts Sarah Palin's rise and fall in American politics, the day she endorsed Nikki Haley on the steps of the South Carolina State House was as powerful as Sarah Palin had ever been and then probably ever will be in American politics. And Nikki rode that wave. There, there was a period of time that we were concerned, and I'm talking about we being my campaign. I mean, we felt we'd position ourselves okay in the lieutenant governor's race. We, we had a little bit of money. We had a little bit of notoriety. We'd assembled a state finance committee and an endorsement committee and a, um, you know, a, uh, an advisory committee, all these things you do to, um, to, to gain credibility of the electorate, to, to present yourself as a credible candidate. So we had done that, and I felt that we were getting, I mean, if you folks didn't know about it because you weren't living it, but I felt that we were beginning to position ourselves not, not as the heir apparent, not as the, as the uh, odds-on favorite, but a credible candidate. And that's the first thing I had to do is present myself. I mean, I'm, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. The first thing I've got to do is convince the Republican primary voter of South Carolina who doesn't know me from third base. I mean, that's no understanding at all about my philosophies, my theories, my politics, what I stood for. Um, so, so all of a sudden, I'm out there trying to gain some some traction with the universe of people that Nikki were trying to gain traction with. And Nikki was a state house member, but she was not a ranking state house member. I mean, she was a uh, kind of, I hate to say this, a little bit ceremonial 
in being in the state house. She and Bobby Harrell had butted heads, and Bobby had demoted her from one significant committee to a fairly insignificant committee. Um, really, truthfully, Bobby Harrell probably created Nikki Haley in a weird political way. So Nikki's running for governor, not raising any money, not gaining any traction. I'm gaining a little traction, but it's in the lieutenant governor's race. And one, maybe a Thursday afternoon, Robert and I had a phone call. Robert and I talked at about 4 o'clock every day. So Robert and I talk at 4, and it was my idea. I said, Robert, you know what I'm concerned about? That Nikki's not going to ever be um, legitimized as a gubernatorial candidate. She's not going to raise enough money. She's running against Andre, a sitting lieutenant governor. Henry, a sitting attorney general. Gresham Barrett, a sitting member of Congress. And she's going to drop down to our race. She's going to say, enough of the running for governor. I just don't have it in me. I mean, I can't raise the money. I don't have the name ID. Um, and for, for, you know, a couple of three months, we were worried and, and kind of kept our eyes on their campaign for fear of them dropping down. Because once again, we felt that we'd built some momentum in the lieutenant governor's race. And when Sarah Palin endorsed Nikki Haley on the states of the South Carolina, on the steps of the South Carolina State House, the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, it was a rocket ship launched. And, and to Nikki's credit, she articulated her vision. Um, she presented, proposed, um, her articulated her her um, her ideas, her premises, her beliefs in a very uh, professional and profound way. And she gained uh, a lot of traction after that. And I mean, she became the inevitable. And and really and truly, uh, it was kind of the beginning of the rambunctious voter. Um, when you think about the 2010 election, we think about Trump in 16, and that being the beginning of the populist movement, the the, the rambunctious. Republican primary voter. Give them a chance to vote for something is or something that could be, and they're going to vote for something that could be. That didn't begin in 16. I mean, I saw that in 2010. I mean, Nikki proposed herself as a gubernatorial candidate. Look at what can be. I mean, I'm an Indian female. Um, I'm more conservative than any of these. Um, and here's here was the word. You ready? These establishment politicians like Andre Bauer, like Henry McMaster, like Gresham Barrett, I'm different. Not only am I an Indian female or, a, you know, female Indian, I'm also a conservative and, and I'm not status quo. And, and for you rambunctious voters, and it was populism in essence, uh, and, and Trump basically nationalized a lot of that. But there were pockets of that. And I sensed it in 2010 when I predicted, for lack of a better word, that I thought Trump had a good chance to win in 16, it was basically my reflections from my campaign in 2010 that led me to believe that. I mean, I knew what I saw in 2010. I know what the polls said, and I know what the professionals said, and I know what CNN and Fox and, and MSNBC were saying, but there was something out there, that there was a disgruntlement, that there was something out there uh, amongst the Republican primary voter. Once again, I don't know what the Democrat primary voter was thinking. I didn't interact with those folks. I mean, I'd bump into, you know, Vincent Shaheen was running for governor, and Vincent and I would bump into one another at certain things that were nonpartisan. But by and large, I mean, I'm in my universe, Vincent's in his universe, and um, and we're operating in those in those different realms. But um, but but Nikki really and truly um, articulated herself exceedingly well, uh, built a brand for herself, and when Trump gets elected, Henry goes to or Trump probably. I mean, I don't know this to be true but I think I understand how the game is played. Somebody from the Trump organization reaches out to Governor McMaster because Henry was the lieutenant governor of South Carolina at the time, and um, and I'm one of the dominoes. I mean, my scandalous affairs led to my demise politically, so it opens a door. I mean, when one door closes, another door opens is the old proverb. So when I get run out of town, somebody's got to take my place. 
um, Glenn, uh, trying to think of his name, uh, he was president pro tem of the Senate, uh, Glenn McConnell becomes lieutenant governor uh, because the Constitution mandates or dictates that. Uh, McConnell becomes president of the College of Charleston. Henry runs for lieutenant governor, wins that seat. I mean, he failed. He, he loses the gubernatorial race. He, he runs for, he goes to, I think he goes to work at the University of South Carolina. Uh, in the law school, if I'm not mistaken. So so Henry leaves that job at the University of South Carolina and becomes a candidate for lieutenant governor. He wins the race for lieutenant governor. He endorses Donald Trump. Trump gets elected president. And probably, I would imagine, I'm speculating here, I would imagine somebody from the Trump orbit, maybe even Trump himself, reaches out to their lieutenant governor McMaster and says, is there anything you want in Washington? In other words, you endorsed me. That's kind of the way the game is played. I mean, I owe you, so to speak. And I got to believe that Henry said, Donald, I don't want to go to Washington. I mean, I'm kind of at the end of a political career. Uh, I'm not a 35-year-old trying to build a political career. I'll tell you what you could do for me. You could find something for Nikki Haley to do. And if Nikki leaves town, I get to be the governor. And that's how that played itself out because Henry became governor not by winning a race. He's won two since then, and Henry will be a 10-year governor in the state of South Carolina. But the way Henry became governor is when Donald Trump named Nikki Haley ambassador to the United Nations. That put her on a not state stage, but a national stage and made her – I mean, she was already one of the – you know, the up-and-comers in Republican politics because the party had a problem with what? Diversity, right? She's an Indian female. I mean, that's diverse. Um, she, she's got a, a conservative message. She had been, I don't want to be offensive here, but she'd been well-handled. And by that, I mean your political consultants and pollsters gave her good advice. Um, she didn't make a mess of being governor. She was fairly effective as a governor of South Carolina. And, and next thing you know, she is on the national stage and gave a few speeches that sounded like she was in control of whatever narrative or debate or situation um, she was having. And, you know, that's kind of the way the game is played. And she always appeared to be likable and relatable. Um, and here we are in 2022 thinking about Nikki Haley potentially being a presidential campaign. And I'll make a prediction. I think she runs. I mean, what else is Nikki going to do? I mean, I don't think Nikki can wait forever. So if Trump's in... Who's more likely to run against? See, and I think if Nikki were to get in, I think DeSantis thinks long and hard about it. I think Ron DeSantis is the biggest threat to Donald Trump today, but I don't think he's the only threat to Donald Trump today. Trump has had his issues in the last year. Uh, we'll get to uh, some of the um, referrals from the uh, January 6th commission. Nobody should be surprised by what happened yesterday in the January 6th commission. I just want to try to explain it and in a way that most of us can kind of go into 2023 understanding what the expectations of that commission are. Let's go to the phone. Who is this and where are you calling from? <laughs> it's Santa Claus, Kitty. I hear you. I came, down to, I came down to drop a few elbows on you guys for Christmas. Well, we're, we're, ready, we're ready for it. <laughs> well, you've been doing your push-ups, brother. Yeah, I hear you. Hey, you're on the air now. I know I am. I'm okay. from this way. Okay. Anyway, I was going to tell you, it amazes me, man, that uh, how we idolize people. You know, we, we you talk about Nikki Haley and Hilton Head. What in the world does she have in common with me? Or for that matter, 99% of the people out there. It's just like me wanting to vote for Bruce Springsteen for president. What I really got in common with Donald Trump 
or anybody in their daggone elite. I mean, when you look at the Democrat Party, like I told you last week, it is the party of rich white people. And they got a, a few poor black black folks that are just daggone being brainwashed enough to vote right along with a bunch of rich white people. I mean, really, we're idolizing these people that don't give a rat's behind about any of us. You know, and you know, yesterday you were talking, and I agree, I know what you're saying. You're saying it's more important to pay attention to, uh, you know, what was going on with uh, Twitter and how you could see how the federal government was doing, you know, was, was working with uh, Twitter to, and all of the Democrat Party to, to, to sway an election. But they were also working, you know, CDC and other parts of the federal government were also working because COVID was just as big a part of swaying this election and putting things in position for the election to be, you know, frankly, I, I, were, I think stolen. And I think, uh, and I think that going on, the, the Republicans, you know, again, either they were part of it or they were just too stupid to get it. But I, I really, really, and I know God tells you to forgive, but I really, really want to see somebody held accountable. I mean, here we were in the state of South Carolina. South Carolina is supposed to be a Republican state. Who was it that told these doctors that they couldn't prescribe other medications that were being proven to work? Who was it that told these hospitals that you couldn't go see your dying mama? Who was it that forced these schools to keep masks on our kill kids this whole during that whole thing? I mean, right now, at most of the foreign schools, the kids can't even don't even get to go out on the playground to play. I mean, I mean, who is the person? There's got to be a person, or is it just a thing that screwed us over for the past three years? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, obviously, COVID. Let's see if we get too far behind. Let's take a break. We'll come back. I'll comment on uh, on Breeze's comments. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. See, Breeze is talking about he wants somebody to be held accountable for for the the, the problems they've caused the 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 resituating of the economy, the um the replacement of society, and um, using COVID as an excuse to have more power over the people. I mean, th- there's a natural impulse. And it may be, I mean, there may, yeah, may I coach it up or, or, or understand better how to utilize or maximize its potential. But there's something in politicians, by and large, that like being in charge. I mean, I like being in charge. I like being in control. The majority of us like being in charge. We like being in control. I don't want my fate future in somebody else's hands. I'd much rather be in my hands. But I have no motivation whatsoever to try and convince you this is the best way to think. Or that's the best way to live. I mean, that's not my job. I've never been that person. I mean, there are a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of things I need to clean up and work on. But I've never been, and maybe that's why I've never been as an effective a politician as I probably could, because I didn't buy into that. You know, if I can only get them to do this, or if I can only get them to do that, I think there's a bent gene in many political leaders, and that's their priority. I mean, it is about convincing people to do as they wish them to do. The, the one enjoyment of this show, well, there are a lot of enjoyments to being allowed to have a, you know, kind of a microphone and a voice. And I mean, it's therapeutic, cathartic. Uh, it helps me sort through some of these some of these issues. Remember yesterday, Frio, we talked about moving to Wyoming or Montana because I don't want to debate 
transgenderism. I don't want to, I don't want you mad with me and I don't want to be angry with you. I don't want to debate whether somebody eight years old should be allowed to enter into a, a medical contract. That's lunacy as far as I'm concerned. And if I'm going to spend all of my waking moments debating a nation about transgenderism or women competing against men and men competing against women and a child eight years old being allowed to enter into a medical contract to have their genitalia mutilated, I'd rather just go to Wyoming and live on a ranch and find a, a retired veterinarian to take care of my cattle and a backhoe and just let me live and let live. So I don't have this sensibility of wanting to tell people what to do. I like to try and inform people on how to make better decisions when it comes to politics. I'm not here as a self-help guru. I'm not trying to try to tell you how to balance your budget, how to save your money, how to get along with your wife, how to raise your kids. I have enough struggles with that myself. I mean, who in the hell am I? You know, to have get on the air and say, hey, if you'll only do this with your money, if you'll only do this in your marriage, if you'll only do this with your kids. No, I mean, I have struggles just like anybody else. So I don't profess by any stretch to be some self-help guru. But 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 I hear Breeze and, and I and I it bothers me that people who have had the uh the, the fortune of a political leadership and, and and the abilities that go along with political leadership of strongly suggesting um, encouraging, um, making laws that dictate the terms and conditions of which we live the majority of our lives. All I want to do is engage a listenership, try to better inform them about what realities are, and hope you've got sense enough to know when to turn and when to twist and when to ying and when to yang. I mean, I'm not here to say ying now, yang then, you know, twist here, turn there. No, I don't have any interest at all. I'm trying to do as, as good a job of that as I possibly can. But I think political leadership in America today, that there's almost a, um, a a burning desire that some have to basically condition society to behave a certain way, and they normally do it by controlling information. Remember yesterday we talked about big government, big media, big tech, deciding what Americans are allowed to believe. That's bizarre to me, but I think it's real. I think there's an element in America today, political leadership is full of this, that they believe it's their responsibility, right, of, you know, uh, obligation to condition society what to do, when to do, how to do. All I want to do is give you some information and hope you're smart enough to act upon that information and become a little more vocal about things you believe in or don't believe in. I mean, I don't believe in the vaccine. I'm sorry, I just don't. I mean, I think if you're under the age of 50 and you don't have a medical compl- um, condition and you're not high risk, I think you're crazy to get vaccinated. Now, now once again, if you're over the age of 50, and you have some sort of um, precondition or you have some sort of um, immunocompromise, I think you need to go get vaccinated. But that's where I've been consistently. Why am I there? I mean, if someone asked me, a doctor, if a doctor called me and asked me, Ken, how can you say that on the radio? And, and I would say, well, tell me I'm wrong. I mean, tell me, forget Pfizer paying the bills, forget Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, forget the, you know, the, the, the amount of money the American taxpayer you know, was on the hook for to invest in the healthcare apparatus. I mean, explain to me why, why I'm wrong. I mean, if that's, you can't, I mean, no, you can't explain why I'm wrong or why I'm wrong. I'll give you another example, Freehold. This is kind of an interesting story we touched on yesterday. Um, and this is in the bulletin of the atomic scientist. Rev gives me a hard time. Um, I, I don't know when I'm above my pay grade. I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I have a, a hard time, but we've had callers called into this show saying, you know nothing, talking about what Biden, when Biden says we're going to decarbonize our economy, we're not going to depend on hydrocarbons to power the, the greatest economy in the history of mankind any longer. We're going to, it's going to be this clean fusion energy. I mean, we've had people call in this show 
and exclaim and proclaim and basically say, do you not know that this clean fusion energy uh, is going to be a game changer and it will help us achieve President Biden's goal of net zero carbon emission um, and a net zero carbon economy? It's that's lunacy. That's absurd. I mean, to me, that shows how willing and gull- or willing to trust and gullible you are in, in government. Um, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, remember last week we, we had this um, this revolution in energy. It's not an energy story. It's not an energy story at all. Um, th- there's a guy named Bob Rosner. He gave an interview to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. Bob Rosner is a physicist at the University of Chicago. He's a former director of the Argonne National Laboratory. I've uh, been a longtime member of the Bulletin's Science and Security Board. Um, and I, I'm not going to read the entire interview because I'd bore you to death. I read it last night. I read a little bit of it yesterday afternoon, went back and read it all um, last night. And, and Bob Rosner, once again, a physicist at the University of Chicago, former director of the Argonne National Laboratory, basically says that this, this clean fusion energy story is, is nothing to do with energy. It has nothing to do with consumable energy and the decarbonizing of the American economy. It's more about the nation's nuclear weapons stockpile. But, but how many people are going to go down that road? Uh, if Jennifer Granholm has a press conference and she says, this is the breakthrough we've been waiting on. For, for those who call Joe Biden's um, idea of uh, net zero carbon economy by the year 25, the joke's on you. But when you talk to an expert, because I'm not an expert. Jennifer Granholm is not an expert. She's a politician. I'm a former politician. Both of us will tell you what you want to hear. This is not an energy story. Bob Rosner is a physicist and has um, served as uh, former director of the Argonne um, National Energy Laboratory. This cat knows what he's talking about. And, and let's say what, and I'm, I'm going to pick excerpts. Because uh, I'd bore you to death with this. I mean, it's 12 pages of interview. Um, he said it was faced by a TV reporter who thought this was an energy story. I had to basically tell them, no, it isn't. It's an extremely interesting story for people interesting in weapons and nonproliferation and for science in general. But, but as it relates to energy, this story has zero, zero meaning. Um, he goes on to say, um, because someone says, why don't you explain? The interviewer says, why don't you explain really quickly for people who aren't up on this? What is it that this, um, this fusion story is about? Um, what is the big breakthrough they're announcing? You know what he says, Freehold? So we've known how to fuse hydrogen and release energy for a long time. In 1952, we exploded the first thermonuclear device whose detonation was largely the result of hydrogen fusion. So we've known how to do this for a very, very long time. What's different here is that it's never been done under controlled circumstances in a laboratory. He goes on to say, uh, the person asking the question in this interview in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Once again, this is on CNN, guys. I mean, this is not going to be mainstream because you wouldn't understand it, nor would I. But this guy explains it in a way. Now, the media has told us and Granholm has told us this is the breakthrough we've been waiting on for those naysayers who say we can't live off. um, We can't generate energy um, aside of fossil fuel that will allow us to not be um, at a competitive disadvantage. Um, So here's the question. The news coverage and how it was put out, though, it was all about, you know, electrical generation from fusion or electricity generation from fusion. Here, here's his answer. Are you ready? Real scientific. It's basically, it's BS, right? 
That's how we started our chat. By the way, during the Energy Department news conference, yeah, the whole affair was split into two bits. There was a news conference where you had Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm with the leadership gang talking, and then afterward you had a panel of Livermore scientists or Livermore scientists who actually worked on the experiment, and that panel was straight on. If you listen to the panel, you would know immediately this had nothing to do with electricity generation. He goes on, and the question is this, but why is this particular facility or something based on this approach unlikely to be used for electrical generation anytime soon? Here's what he says. Listen closely, folks. You ready? Here's a guy who's a physicist. He sat on several different boards of energy um, exploration, uh, energy research. He says, this facility can do one shot a day. This is at slightly more than two megajoules. For an energy source, it would have to do the same thing at least 10 times a second. But the facility can do one shot a day to produce adequate energy it would have to do 10 of these a second. If you ask, it continues. If you ask, do the laser do the lasers exist that can do this? Answer, not in your dream. The pellet costs a bit over $100,000 to manufacture. The word custom applies to clothing. My custom suit, right? There's a custom pellet. And it probably took about a week or more to manufacture that custom pellet. You need well over a million pellets like that to the same standard to power a power plant for one hour of one day. So you might guess that the technological challenges are formidable. And I haven't even described how you're going to get electricity out of this kind of facility. We haven't even talked about that or about the cost. But we've got people running around because CNN said it, believing they understand fusion and they understand nuclear power. And they believe that we're at the cusp of breakthrough technology that is going to replace hydrocarbon. And because some politician or talking head on CNN says it, half the country believes it. So the last question I want to read and then I'll conclude. Um, I have a hard time imagining how we're going to transfer that heat into some sort of electricity generation. Uh, Mr. Rosner, well, there is no good answer to that yet. How long will it take? I'm asked a lot. My answer was twofold. It's going to take many, many, many decades, if at all. The second was ultimately, it's going to be, is it going to be practical? The answer to that will have to involve the obvious question. How much is it going to cost to do this? And no one has a clue about how much this is going to cost and whether it can be competitive with, as, as an example, solar cells or even solar cells coupled with grid scale batteries. We have no idea. So I can't answer that question. And not to be presumptuous, if I can't answer that question, not many people can. But we have people on CNN exclaiming this as technological, uh, a technological breakthrough that will confirm Joe Biden's, you know, an announcement, a pronouncement that we're going to be zero um, net carbon emissions by 2035. The absurdity of that. But, but once again, that there, there's an element in America today that likes to control your brain. And they know how gullible you are. They know how naive you can be. They know how partisan you can become. And if your guy says we're going to get all fossil fuels by 2035 and you're on your guy's team and there's some fusion breakthrough in a laboratory that is more about nuclear weaponry than it is generating electricity, you buy into it. And then you ridicule those who don't fully understand it. 
when the when the when the joke is on those of you who think you understand it because you read something in Salon, you read something on Vox, you saw a um, a talking head on CNN or MSNBC proclaim this as the breakthrough we've all been waiting on. Um, a physicist at the University of Chicago and somebody who sits on one of the major um, energy think tank boards says this is more. This is far more about our na- nation's nuclear weapon stockpile than it is any sort of electricity generation. But that's not what half the country believes. Go to Twitter. Go to Facebook. Go to some of the comment sections in major media publications around America. They'll lead you to believe that we are on the cusp. We're the cutting edge of regeneration via fusion when we just absolutely are not. And people that know about it kind of laugh under their breath at the silliness of which some of us consider this. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I'll put this story aside unless you want to continue the conversation. Us nuclear scientists, us or we, um, you know, we nuclear scientists, we can continue this conversation. The point I'm trying to make, guys, is it, the media has no intent to tell you the truth. I mean, they, they create a narrative. Whatever the Democrats say um, needs to be the narrative. The, the modern-day political big tech, big media um, conglomerates c- kind of be- begin supporting that narrative. And, I mean, if the media had any credibility, they would have challenged Jennifer Granholm and said, hey, you know, these, these physicists, these nuclear scientists are saying something contrary to what you're saying, but they don't talk to those people. They talk to the politicians, the Jennifer Granholms of the world, who basically say that this, you know, this is a game-changer and it will help us achieve President Biden's goal of a kind of a net zero carbon economy. Lunacy. It's insanity. It's nowhere near uh, what the story should be. The story should be that we've done something we haven't done before, but it was not even a baby step. I mean, it was such a small advancement forward, and all of a sudden it's the game changer and, uh, and, and the breakthrough. I want to go back to the story that I still think will help define 2023 and the upcoming presidential election. We know what happened yesterday, and we'll get to this, the January 6th inquiry, um, and I guess their, their grand finale by um, referring President Trump or former President Trump to the Justice Department. I mean, it, it, it has all the legal force of, uh, I mean, the Wall, I think the Wall Street Journal said an inner office memo. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Attorney General Merrick Garland has already appointed a special counsel, Jack Smith, to investigate um, what what Trump schemes were to stay to stay in office, but in some of the language I read last night, um, insurrection, obstruction of a final proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and a conspiracy to make false statement to the government. I mean, those are the four charges. There are others who are caught up in this, but the majority of uh, attention has been paid to Donald Trump. I thought the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal gave a fairly um, honest accounting. Um, fairly accurate accounting. Um, I saw some right-wing sites that you know are totally unfair to the process, left-wing sites. I mean, it was a witch hunt. It was totally biased. It was intentional. Nobody should have been surprised that as Congress was leaving um, you know, town for the last time this year, and there will be no Adam Kinzinger, no Liz Cheney um, to worry about moving forward. Liz Cheney says that, you know, President Trump or former President Trump's threat to democracy and his actions were threat to democracy. Um, Liz Cheney's an appropriator. We got $31 trillion in debt. To me, the $31 trillion in debt 
that Congress has appropriated is a bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump ever will be. But, you know, the people of Wyoming have spoken to the tune of about 40 percentage point victory um, for uh, Harriet Hagman over over Liz Cheney. I stick to my guns, guys. My political instinct and gut says do not abandon this commission. Keep the committee in place. Um, Instead of a Democrat chair, you'll have a Republican chair. Allow Hakeem Jeffries to put on that committee whomever he chooses, and let's do an honest investigation. Let's have somebody there um, asking Nancy Pelosi, did she decline the offer the president made to beef up security at the Capitol for fear that something like this may happen? Um, Let's find out from the FBI. How how willing did they participate? Um, Capital City Police, what did they do or not do? We've not, we've not had any of those questions asked. We don't have the answer to any of those questions. But as we speak, the president has been referred to the Department of Justice. Once again, it carries the weight of an inner office memo. Merrick Garland had already appointed someone uh, to do the investigation, and Jack Smith has already owned the case, so to speak. Though this is 100% political, nothing else. I mean, it, there, there's nothing here that isn't political. Um the, the Wall Street Journal in their uh, op-ed piece said, and I quote, when Mr. Trump pressured Vice President Mike Pence to reject electoral college vote, he was following a crackpot legal theory that claimed to represent the true meaning of the Constitution. That's where um, Freehold Cato was there before you were, and, and Cato and Rev would get angry with me because I'd say the Constitution does not allow this to happen. That There were some lawyers out there, I think John Eastman, was one of the main lawyers. Um, he's a former law professor, constitutional scholar, but he floated the idea that there there is a there's a theory out there, a certain interpretation of the Constitution that allows um, Mike Pence to do what Donald Trump wanted him to do. I never bought into that. I never believed. I mean, to me, that was a crackpot legal theory. But it's not against the law. I mean, giving bad legal advice is not illegal, right? I mean, some legal theory that you believe in or I believe in, you have an interpretation of the Constitution. I have a, uh, another interpretation of the Constitution. I mean, that's not breaking the law. Trump's ultimate goal was not to obstruct. I mean, he, he wanted it to go his way. I mean, that's what he was trying to figure out. How can I, I mean, they stole it from me. How can I steal it back? I mean, th- those were my words um, during the, the post-election period of 2020. They stole it from him fair and square, and he was trying to figure out a way to steal it back. So giving crackpot or giving bad legal advice isn't illegal. I mean, you wish it weren't the case. Um, and, and to suggest that, you know, Trump's ultimate goal was to obstruct the congressional session, I mean, I don't buy that for a second. I think he wanted it to go his way without question. Um but, but there were no guns. I mean, there were no organization. I mean, it was a bunch of, you know, men and women who showed up at the Capitol irate at the fact that they thought their guy had gotten a bad deal. But there was no organized insurrection here by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it had no chance of success. I mean, do we really believe? I mean, I'm asking our liberal listeners out there. Do you really believe that January 6th, the insurrection, your words, not mine, the insurrection of January 6th ever had a chance? to stop the peaceful transition of power. Of course it didn't. So, so to say there was a, um, you know, maybe there was an obstruction to a federal, excuse me, an official proceeding. I mean, I'd probably go along with that. So, so, so you know, you're going to refer Trump 
to the Department of Justice, former president, because he obstructed an official proceeding or led to the obstruction of a uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Really? That's a, that's a, that's a trumped-up charge, no pun intended. Conspiracy to make a false statement to the government. What, what does that mean, a conspiracy to make a false statement um, to the government? I don't have any clarity as to what that means. Um, but, but once again, Trump got bad legal advice. It wasn't just John Eastman. There were some others who said their interpretation of the Constitution did allow for Mike Pence to do something that I didn't think the Constitution afforded him the opportunity to do. Um, Pence said yesterday um, that he doesn't think it was. I mean, if anybody should be PO'd about this, it'd be Mike Pence, right? And Pence even says that he doesn't think there was any um, any 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 breaking of the law in regards to what Trump was trying to convince Pence um, to do. And then you go to the First Amendment. Um, some would argue the 2020 election was stolen. Some would argue it wasn't. But Trump certainly has the right to argue it was, right? I mean, you can say he misled his followers. He misled the masses. How many politicians have ever misled their followers? Really? I mean, is that against the law now? I mean, is, is there criminal charges against a politician who mislead his followers? Once again, the First Amendment. We talked a lot about that in the last several weeks. The 2020 election, so some say, was not stolen. Others say it was. But, but certainly it's not against the law for Trump to argue that it was, and it's not against the law for him to mislead his followers, is it? I mean, are we going to make, as a criminal act, the misleading of voters as part of American politics? Um, The Justice Department's job is to not police political deceit. I mean, that's not a criminal conspiracy. I mean, if we're going to deceive the voters, if politicians are going to be charged with some sort of criminal conspiracy every time they deceive the voters, you you better build a bunch of jails or prisons in Washington, D.C. and and near state capitals all over America because politicians are always trying to deceive their voters into believing that if you send me to Washington, I'm going to make sure everybody has health care. If you send me to Washington, I'm going to balance the budget. If you send me to Washington, I'm going to secure the border. If you send me to Washington, I'm going to make sure these people who are looking for political and, and economic asylum are afforded the opportunity to escape their hardships and enter, you know, the, the land of opportunity. I mean, that's political deceit 101. I practiced a pretty good bit of political deceit in my life, believe it or not. It's not a criminal conspiracy. It can't be called a criminal conspiracy. So that's all I got on this um this January 6th commission and what they've done. Once again, I am one that believes continue the committee, reappoint leadership, allow Hakeem Jeffries to put on that committee whomever he chooses, and let's not just get one side of the story. Let's let's get the blood, guts, and feathers of what happened January 6th. I mean, if Trump did conspire, if Trump did lead an insurrection, if he did obstruct an official proceeding, let's get it on the record. What we've got an investigation being led by Jack Smith. And once again, this is all politics. I mean, it doesn't carry. Well, it, it's an inner office memo. I mean, it's from Congress as, as a as a point of reference that they strongly they encourage Jack Smith to be more vigilant and aggressive in the way he pursues Donald Trump. And, and they're really trying to get him disallowed to run for office. I mean, this is that's what the political body in Washington is doing. And there aren't many Republicans standing up for Trump. I mean, there really aren't. And, you know, we talked yesterday about this scale Trump abandonment 
on one end, Trump loyalty on the other. I mean, where is the right place somewhere in the middle? I mean, if you're 100% loyal to Trump, I mean, that's not where you need to be. If you're 100% in favor of abandoning Trump and everything he's doing or stood for or wanted to see done in Washington, to me, that's not the right place to be. But where is the right place on that kind of sliding scale of Trumpism? Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Mike in Darlington. Good hey, morning. Uh, you're off to a great start. I'm, I, I believe you're covering everything from fusion science uh, right on up to uh, current political uh, shenanigans. But uh, I think I think you're absolutely right in your explanation of the uh, uh, fusion experiment. I mean, it was it was just like for a few billionths of a second they they can contain it. And how in the world would you transfer that kind of heated uh, plasma? I don't. I, I, how would you transfer the the heat to get something to? Uh, a generator that didn't melt the, everything in it uh, to uh, generate any kind of uh, power with that thing is unbelievable. But what you're talking about with the uh, with the situation, I think you're absolutely right. They should keep that committee there, and they should uh, stack it up in a fairly equitable way and find out what in the world, who did what, and when did they do it. And uh, see if uh, how Trump stacks up against everyone else there. I, I still believe he's the best president I've seen in my lifetime uh, with all of his flaws. And uh, he has a few. There's no doubt about it. But uh, he uh, he did pretty much what he said he would do. And I think he tried his best to do it. And I think he loves this country, which I cannot believe that these people actually love this country. I, th I think they want this country to just break apart and blow away, as far as I can tell. But if they would get that committee and get the right people on that committee that had uh, good sense and some uh, uh, strategic uh, political savvy to uh, get the right questions asked to the right people under oath, I think it would solve a lot of problems in this country. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. My concern is this, and um, I mean, I've got a lot of questions about it, and I'm not seeing the minutes. I mean, I've not watched much of the hearings because I knew it was a partisan witch hunt. I knew we would end up with some sort of criminal referral. I mean, there was no, I mean, it was obvious. I mean, when they stacked the committee like they did, there was no way they were going to stack that committee and not make some sort of criminal referral. But it really is an inner office memo. It doesn't mean anything. Now, Jack Smith being appointed by the Department of Justice, that's another animal. But here's what here's my main concern. And I go back to what I said earlier. The Justice Department's job is not to police partisan deceit. I didn't say dissent. Deceit. Politicians have always deceived their voters. Republicans deceived their voters into convincing or by convincing them that if given the opportunity, they're going to balance the budget and they're going to cut Social Security and they're going to, you know, be, be the um, the guardians of entitlements. And, all, and then Democrats do it in another way. But those aren't criminal conspiracies. And, and that's the argument the January 6th Commission is making. When you really read the language of the referrals, they're basically saying that that partisan deceit is now criminal conspiracy. And all I'm asking or all I'm insinuating, if that's the new normal, if politicians misleading the public 
trying to convince the public to believe something that's unbelievable, then you you better build a bunch of prisons around where politicians transact their business. Callers on the phone, who is this? Where are you calling from? Scott from Florence. Hey, Scott, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. I mean, and you know I get fired up when I talk about this stuff, but what are we doing? I mean, are we really spending money on this? I mean, how can we go after a sitting president, what, two times they tried to impeach him? They did impeach him twice. They they impeached him twice. Now they're going after him criminally, but yet we got a politician who had 33,000 emails, which is 100%. We've got military soldiers that did less that are serving time that fought for our frigging country, and we don't go after her, I think that's the problem with conservatives right now, and that's what's got me fired up, is how can they after the Republicans like they're doing? And you got Joe Biden, the big man, taking money and nothing's happening. You got Hillary with 33,000 emails. The problem I got with my party is, they ain't got a backbone in going after nobody, but the Democrats somehow, some way, continue to get all this stuff up to put mud in people's face. And and at the end of the day, it's at our expense. That's our tax money we're wasting because no one's going to jail. Nobody from the FBI has went to jail for all the illegal things they did to go after a sitting president. I mean, what are we doing? Why are we letting them spend our money, and how do we get them to stop without being an insurrectionist? Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. I mean, some of that will stop when the Republicans take charge. And I think what you got to be careful about, I mean, a lot of this is going to be, is Kevin McCarthy an establishment Republican or is he an America firster? I mean, that, that, that'll that be one of the most critical deciding factors in how it shakes out in the next um, session of Congress. Is Kevin McCarthy a go-along, get-along, Paul Ryan, John Boehner speaker, or is he an America firster? Is he going to shake it up a bit? Is McCarthy going to put... Jim Jordan in charge of the House Judiciary Committee, and Jordan's going to aggressively pursue what the FBI may or may not have done. Trey Gowdy said yesterday something very interesting. Trey said, so so in America today, we've got Congress investigating a former president and the FBI colluding or conspiring with Twitter to make sure what is known about one presidential candidate and another. I mean, that, that's how far off the rails we are. And I hear Scott's frustration. I'm not in Congress. I'm not in charge. I don't have any control. All I can do is read and study and and try to better understand and talk to a lot of people. As as Freehold said, communicate some of these issues and realities to a listenership. That's all I can do. I mean, if I were a member of Congress, I'd like to believe I wouldn't go along and get along and I'd be irate about the set of circumstances. But I think you've got to strategize. And I think part of the strategy needs to be don't abandon the committee, keep the committee in place put a kind of a firebrand Republican in charge of the committee and allow Hakeem Jeffries to put on that committee whomever he chooses to. And let's have a bipartisan effort to find out who knows what, when, where, how. Are there other people in harm's way when it comes to January 6th? And and, and simultaneously, let's investigate the FBI. Let's investigate the origin of COVID. I mean, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and I think those issues are critically important to, um, I mean, once again, I'm not afraid to find the truth. If Trump conspired, if Trump obstructed, if Trump, you know, defrauded, then let's hold him accountable for that. 
But but I think we we've got to have fairness in the way we investigate these issues. And I just don't think they I don't think the January sixth commission ever had fairness or objectivity in its veins. It was all about you know partisanship. I get it. I mean they, they run the joint. They had the right to do as they chose to do. But but I think the better answer for Republicans moving forward keep the committee in place, allow Democrats to put on that committee who they choose, and let's get to the bottom of exactly who knew what, when, where, and how. All, all at the same time, let's find out. I mean, it looks to me like the FBI was more animated than Twitter was. I mean, when I read Taibbi's drop yesterday, I mean, it really, Twitter seemed to me, some of the executives at Twitter were like, wow, I mean, you guys really are pushing hard. That, that's bizarre to me that a San Francisco-based liberal organization where 99.6% of its political contributions were made to Democrats, they were trying to pump the brakes a little bit on what the FBI was trying to do. Take a break. Back in a minute. Forget whether you love Trump or hate Trump for one second. That's hard to do, and I and I respect that. I mean, I understand he's a polarizing political figure. He makes you um, commit certain emotions to, uh, I don't know, your, your support of him or your your, your non-support of him, but but forget that for one second. I mean, American government's founded on certain principles. We had a January 6th commission that was made up of seven Democrats, all voted to impeach Trump twice, two Republicans who were, who were on the record saying he's unfit for office. They voted to impeach him once. So you've got nine people on a committee evaluating information, deciding what's best for the country in relation to a former president, and there are 9, 18, there are 16 impeachment votes between the nine. I mean, do we really believe that that's good for the country? Does that get us to a better place? I mean, as bad as you may think Trump was for the country, and I respect that. I disagree, but I respect that. You've got nine members of Congress who have between them 16 impeachment votes, and every single one of those people have said he's unfit for office. You think that's good for the country? I'm sorry, I don't. Let's go to the phone. Who is this, and where are you calling from? Hey, it's Jeff from Florence. How are you this Hey, morning? Jeff. Hey, um, so uh, j- just to go back to your previous caller for one second, who was asking how we stop this endless investigation. But you guys are going to be okay with Jim Jordan just digging through the laundry. I can't hardly wait. I mean, I can't. I, I'll yeah. be, I, can, I cannot hardly. I, I'm ashamed of how excited I am that Jordan is going to chair either the oversight, probably judiciary. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I should be embarrassed at how excited I am, but I'm not. No, no, you are, and and it's 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 Trey Dowdy all over. Uh, Jim Jordan will do just like Trey Dowdy. He'll investigate for three years and file not one charge. There will be no prosecution. So th- that'll be interesting. But if Hunter Biden did anything wrong, absolutely throw the book at him. It's important to remember that, you know, all laws apply equally, right? I'll agree uh, with I, that. I'm yeah, sure. I'm, I am good if Joe Biden and Hunter Biden broke the law, no arguments, absolutely investigate them. And it'll be done um, in Congress initially. And then for the first time, you, you have to admit we're moving into a phase with Donald Trump where this is not a political um, investigation anymore. Can you agree with that? The January 6th commission is not political. No, we're moving into a phase. Well, I mean, we've been in that phase. I mean, Jack Smith, Jack Smith has been on the case for, what, 60 days? I mean, the, the Justice Department uh, appointed Jack Smith as a special counsel uh, about Trump's schemes. There were not mine. So, I mean, it, this is run 
this is run alongside or parallel to a, a justice department and appointed investigation. That's why, to me, it's, I mean, it's an inter-office memo. It means absolutely nothing. The referral means zero. The, 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 the real investigation is being done by Jack Smith as he's been appointed by the Justice Department. Well, that's, 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 he has, he is investigating it. It's moved out of the political committee, um, which, don't kid yourself, everybody who sat in front of that January 6th committee testified under oath. How many people do you think um, lied to Congress? I don't have any idea, but how many were cross-examined, Jeff? Well, that regardless, cross-examined. No, you can't say regardless, Jeff. An investigation requires examination and cross-examination. You can't say that. You cannot take that one. I mean, that, that's one of the bedrocks of any investigation, an examination and a cross-examination. And if you don't have that, you don't have an investigation. Okay, just just hear me what I'm saying. Just hear me out. You have an investigation. They're investigating if activities are done and they wrote a report, okay? When when people, uh, when the police department comes, pulls somebody in and they test, the, you know, they, they talk to the police, is there a cross-examination or are they gathering evidence? They would be gathering evidence. What do you think the January 6th committee was doing when they talked to only Republicans? Let, let's be honest. You can't, Jeff, Jeff. You know, sure. No, I, I want to ask you this question, please. How many people were partisan hacks for Democrats that got testified under oath? I, I don't have any idea. I, mean, I, I don't have any idea how many, I mean, the part of, you're trying to compare a police investigation as to whether a crime was committed with a congressional committee hearing, and they're just—I mean, they're, they're two. I mean, those are impractically. I mean, those are totally impractically different from one. Of, I mean, you can't compare one to the other. Oh, they'll, they'll get their t- day in court. Trump will get his day in court, where his lawyers. Uh, well, I don't think he'll ever go to court. I mean, I think the Justice Department w- w- will decide at some point in time. That, that, that Trump's, uh, you know, a, a horse's ass and he did a lot of things he shouldn't have done, but he didn't commit any crime. I, mean, I really believe that, that as, as, as partisan as Merrick Garland can be, he will probably at some point in time pull the reins back. You, you, you just totally dismiss his lawyers? You totally dismiss? I didn't say I totally dismiss anything. You, you, you don't believe anything they say, then? No, I, I believe a lot of what they say. Uh, Trump deceived people. But, but but political okay. deceit is not criminal conspiracy, Jeff. Politicians deceive no. people all the time. Trump is not responsible for those people kicking windows down and breaking down doors. They need to be held accountable. I mean, I think they've overreached in some of the seditious conspiracy and and some of these other things. I mean, I think trespassing and and you know uh, rioting and all that. But but no, I mean, when you try to say it's that Donald Trump. Call. You're saying Donald Trump motivated people to a point where they were willing to commit insurrection against a government to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Good luck proving that. Well, and, and hey, it, it's it's not my job to have to prove it. I, I'm, I'm good with that. But I, I do believe that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the testimony under oath is different from what these people said publicly on Fox. There was no calling up of troops. The acting defense secretary absolutely acknowledged what Trump is saying is a lie. Under oath, Hope Hicks, Herschel, his lawyers told him to not, like, tell the 
protesters to peacefully. There is no violence. Call for civil discord, but not physical violence. And he refused. They motivated, I mean, he communicated with people putting forward false electors. Did they have those communications? They, they also played edited tape. Okay. I mean, we, we know they edited the material that they probably, when a witness is there, so some of the material had been edited. We know that now. Let me ask you a question, Jeff. Are you okay sure. with Congress having nine Democrats, two Republicans, all of which impeached the president of which they're investigating? Are you okay with Congress doing that? Yeah, listen. I mean, that's a yes or no. Yes or no. I mean, are you okay exactly. with, with nine exactly. members of Congress, all of which impeached Donald Trump, fairly investigating the behavior and antics of Donald Trump? I'll answer that question. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. It's not ideal. It's not okay. But let me ask you a question. Just to be truth, be truthful here. Was that was there an option to have other the Republicans represented differently on a committee? Yeah, and, Nan- Kevin McCarthy, and Nancy what, what Pelosi and Nancy do? Pelosi said you're not going to put these people on the committee. They were sitting members of Congress, and she chose for the first time in American history as a majority leader, Speaker of the House to tell the minority leader who he can or cannot put on a committee. Okay. And, and, and to be honest, are, are some of those people not involved in the in, in, in material witnesses that, and possibly? That makes absolutely no difference. That is at the discretion because, of the speaker. There is no law. That there is no legislation that 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 uh, prohibited Jim Jordan from serving on that commission. That was Nancy Pelosi and her willful discretion that decided to tell Kevin McCarthy you can't put Jim Jordan on this committee. There is no law, no statute, lo, no legislative authority that says he can't serve on that committee. She chose to decide he can't serve on that committee because yes, she because- felt he was tainted. Yeah, so so you know this this is a, a nice little sidebar. It's a it's a neat little talking point. But the reality is that no, it's a reality. That that is the reality. No, no, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You, you're insinuating that I misspoke. Did I misspeak? Is there any law prohibiting Jim Jordan from serving on the January sixth commission? Other than the fact that it would be in Is there any no. law that prohibits Jim Jordan from serving on the January 6th commission, or did Nancy Pelosi unilaterally make that decision at her own discretion? You're, 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 the sad fact is people have been prosecuted. People have and will serve jail time for that invest for January 6th. The fact is, Jim Jordan could be one of those people. He could be. And you, you want to have somebody like that have power to affect the outcome of a, an investigation. And you would be more comfortable with Adam Kinzinger and, and Liz Cheney. You think they give yeah. Trump a fairer shake than a Jim Jordan? At the end of the day, here's the, here's the truth. Does Trump deserve a fair shake, or do we need to get to the bottom? He deserves a fair shake just like you or I do. Absolutely. Hell yeah, he deserves a fair shake. You're suggesting he doesn't deserve a fair shake. Well, you just I, you just kind of let us behind that, that you, did, you you no, you you no. really played your hand without knowing you played your hand. You never believed the guy deserved a fair shake because you despise him and you're blinded by that animus you have toward the former president. You're never going to give Trump a fair shake. Half the country are never going to give Trump a fair shake because you've made your mind up. 
that he's unfit for office. It doesn't matter what the investigation says. That's the decision you've made. Ken, you, you, you believe that Jim Jordan can be impartial. As impartial? You, no. You don't believe, he can be. Don't and you think the other nine were? And you think the other uh, nine were impartial? I, I honestly believe that. Do I believe that uh, I like Liz Cheney? I don't. <laughs> you think the nine daughter. members of that committee were fair and impartial toward Donald Trump? I believe they were interested in getting to the truth. And you don't, and that's fine. But the reality is you can't get blood from a stone. Do I think that all the Republicans that testified in front of that committee lied to the American people? And they gave false witness and testimony against Donald Trump? The answer is no, they didn't. They told the truth. I think they're Americans. I think that they realized we're in a situation where somebody's dangerous for the country. And he shouldn't be allowed to be anywhere near power again. And he won't be. And that's what he we disagree. We just fundamentally, doing. and that's, that's. I yeah. mean, we could argue from now until 5 o'clock this afternoon. That is the we fundamental could. disagreement we have. You think he's unfit for office. I hope he gets elected again. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate yeah. it, my man. We got to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Who is this, and where are you calling from? Um, this is Williams. Hey, Williams. How are you? And didn't Jim Jordan didn't answer the subpoena when he committed your um, subpoena? Yeah, I think he uh, he refused to. I mean, I think that's why he's under investigation. I think the ethics. I think the House Ethics Commission is going is investigating him because he did refuse to appear. Okay, okay, you talking about uh, um, the um, the makeup of the uh, committee? Didn't Nancy Pelosi offer Evan McCarthy five and five and give him everything he wanted? You still turn it down? McCarthy McCarthy wanted to appoint Banks and Jordan. And she said Banks and Jordan couldn't appear because they were potentially to be investigated. Um, but there were no laws against what Banks nor Jordan with? appearing on the committee. And why would you want crooks on the, on the committee? Why would you want crooks on the committee? Benny Thompson chaired that committee, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's as, he's, he's as big a crook as there is in Washington. I'll assure you of that. Let me, let me ask you this. Okay, you... Um, they had an opportunity to set the record right. Trump is going to jail. Smith is going to get him. Smith is going to get him. So you don't have to worry about you running for president no more. Well, anyway, I'm going to tell you, have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. I got a feeling Williams is far more worried about Trump running for president than I am. And um, I'll ask our audience. Um, there's, they're odds makers. There's a guy named Jack Smith and a guy named Donald Trump. Who are you betting on to survive? Just, I mean, just answer that. Who are you betting on to survive? Jack Smith or Donald Trump? Um, I know where my money would be. Let's go to the phone. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Daphne from Dillon. Hey, Daphne, how are you? I'm all right today. Uh, we now know what they meant or what Obama meant by fundamentally transform America. Do we not? We do. It, it, it meant that uh, our government can be a communist government by interfering with the freedom of the press, freedom of speech, the right to assemble, and the right to freedom of religion. We now know 
that that transformation is almost complete. And when Jeff or William talks, uh, it would be very, you know, detrimental to them to admit that Adam Schiff, who was head of the Intel Committee, uh, was sleeping with a Chinese spy, and Pelosi refused to take him off the committee. It would be detrimental for them to admit that Nancy Pelosi would not, was forbidden, the committee was forbidden to call her to testify about why she would not bring in troops as Donald Trump uh, requested. She, she, in fact, knew about a lot of things, and nobody wants to question her. Now, they are all right, both of those gentlemen that you just talked to, are all right with political prisoners. That is, anyone that was close to Trump was arrested, and their habeas corpus was ignored. They're all right with the FBI trying to frame Trump and pay a million dollars to a guy to try and uh, go get absolute proof that the dossier was real when they knew it was real. They're all right with the FBI uh, claiming that the dossier and all that was real and lying to a court. They don't want those people arrested for lying to a court. They don't want Hillary arrested for destroying classified information that was kept at her home while she was in office. They're all right with the Republicans that hated Trump and want to keep the government as corrupt as they can, stabbing him in the back in front of that committee for a profit. Now, they're all right with $3.4 million being spent to keep Twitter from telling the truth about Joe Biden and his son. They're all right with all that. So... Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. Well, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this. Um, the point I'm trying to make, we're up against a, a hard break top of the hour. The point I'm trying to make is, I mean, Trump has a right to say he believes the election was stolen. He has a right to mislead his followers. I mean, that's not breaking the law. Political deceit is as old as politics in general. I mean, politicians have been deceiving the public since we created the world politics and government. And to believe that the Justice Department or a, or a subcommittee, a select committee, is, is going to imply that political deceit is a criminal conspiracy, I mean, that doesn't hold the light of day. It just doesn't. You, you can believe the election was stolen. You cannot believe the election was stolen. Donald Trump has every right to believe the election was stolen. Donald Trump every, has every right to say the election was stolen. His followers have every right to believe or not believe, to have enough of Trump or not have enough of Trump. But a politician deceiving people, deceiving his base, deceiving voters is not a criminal conspiracy by any stretch of the imagination. You can't go there. If we go there, as my grandfather said, you'll have more hell on your hands than you say grace over, son. I'll assure you of that. We've got to stop there. And when you suggest that, you know, Jordan didn't have a, the ability to be fair and unbi unbiased, you, you think these others did? I mean, the nine members of the select committee had 16 impeachment votes between them. 
That's all. That's two each, except for Kinzinger and um and Cheney. Take a break. Back in a minute. I'm going to say this, and I mean it. I, I thank you to Williams and Jeff, and I mean that sincerely because those guys. I mean, they, they listen to someone in the mornings that they take exception with nearly everything that comes out of his mouth, and they call in, and we debate and argue and disagree. But but I, and I mean that sincerely. Um, that doesn't happen a lot in America today, and it doesn't happen a lot in talk radio today because. These big shot talk show hosts have screeners. And if someone makes too much sense, they'll say, no, don't let them on. Uh, you know, they may be disagreeable. Um, I'm not here to serve up Kool-Aid. Uh, once I believe that I'm simply serving up Kool-Aid to a gullible audience, I'll find something else to do. Um, I enjoy the audience. I enjoy the interaction. I enjoy the disagreement. I enjoy the fact that you're pounding your steering wheel when Jeff says, <laughs> says things that you disagree with. And um, let's not ever stop doing that. I mean, I'm speaking not just to Williams and Jeff. There are others out there that disagree with a lot of what I say. And I wish you'd call in and let's take the airwaves on um, some of those disagreements because I think that's woefully lacking in American political discourse today. You kind of um, you silo yourself over here and I silo myself over here and I don't want to hear a damn thing you've got to say and you don't want to hear anything I've got to say. And, um, you know, I know I'm right, but you know you're right. Well, somebody's wrong. <laughs> I mean, everybody can't be right. And I just think the um, the beauty of spontaneous talk radio is the allowance of those sorts of disagreeable situations and remain uh, respectful. So, Williams, thank you. Jeff, thank you. Um, and, and to our audience, thank you. Uh, I just think it's um, it's a, it's a testament to tribute to what we try and um, do here. Dr. Bolt's shaking his head. I think, I mean, he's an academic. But but I think he would agree that the um the less monolithic world we live in, uh, the better. Well, I think uh, hats off to you. I think that's what Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and the other founding fathers wanted when they created this this country uh, a healthy dialogue. And so uh, you're, you're well, very, I mean, very I've, Jeffersonian. I've always considered myself somewhat like Jefferson. Um, you know, <laughs> when when I speak, everybody says he reminds me of Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so so I, so I certainly I, I certainly get that. Um, I like the Jefferson's Ocean Bourbon. That's about where uh, my, my my line of dealing. Anyway, anyway, that, that's kind of where it, um, it begins and ends. Um, Dr. Wilbold, history chair More. at Francis Marion University, is with us. So we talked a lot about in in the um the debate with Williams and Jeff about Congress. Take us back, if you will. Christmas is a, a time we reflect and we reminisce and we think about, you know, our blessings and our fortunes. What was the first and second Continental Congress like in the, um, what, it'd be 1774-ish? Yep. Yeah. You know, it would have been the first and then 1775, uh, 76 to the second. I mean, take us back there, Dr. Bolt, from a historical perspective. What would it have been like? Well, they were meeting in Philadelphia, the British taxation policies, the uh, number of British troops was only going up. Many Americans were just upset with this. We've been tilting at this windmill now for, for 10 years, asking for the same thing. We're not, we're not getting anywhere. So finally in 1774, the first Continental Congress meets in New York. This isn't exactly a, a who's who of future revolutionary leaders. Uh, lots of guys didn't want to go. Some of the guys who went, who came up to Philadelphia, the, the colonies or eventually states that sent them, sent them really up there for, to do two things, right? You're, you're going to represent us, but your real reason is we want you to sort of settle some land disputes that are going on as well. But this, this would have been of, some of the B team. So, yeah, exactly yeah. right, yeah. And, and lots of guys, if they were picked, was like, uh, I, I got a thing, right? I, I got to stay home to be with the family. Now, again, one of the key figures, though, who does come 
up to Philadelphia is Patrick Henry. And it's early on in the debates. It's Patrick Henry who says, gentlemen, uh, the names of New York, Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, they no longer mean anything to me anymore. Gentlemen, I am not a Virginian. I am an American. And so now, again, we're starting to think, all right, we're not going to identify us as, as from this colony. There's something bigger, something grander, something more nobler uh, that unites us. And so Patrick Henry was kind of just laying the groundwork uh, to say, hey, we've got to come uh, together. We can't take on these the British independently. Uh, we've got to come together, pool our resources together. And that's the only way we're going to be able to defend our liberties. Was Massachusetts and Virginia the most significant colonies I mean, you know, we have 13, sure. and I get, I mean, everybody's yeah. equal, and, you know, <laughs> but, but, I mean, in all honesty, um, they were the most important original colonies. Of course, it probably, you know, Massachusetts is the sort of the hotbed of where the revolution starts. This is where you had the strongest opposition to British policy. You had it in all 13 of the colonies, but Massachusetts was the, the leading port, the major commercial city. It won't be surpassed by New York until the 1820s. And so Master Boston and Massachusetts, it's sort of the, the locus, the centerpiece where you have the most militant opposition. You, know, you get John Adams, Sam Adams, John Hancock, uh, almost a who's who of important figures in the American Revolution and the founding of the country. And so, again, Massachusetts is sort of the, the, the flashpoint. But again, there's a lot of opposition coming from Virginia as well. And of course, what you're starting to have is you have these, these, these ship captains who go from Boston down to the other ports, and usually just to pass the time, they'd get the newspaper. Right? You'd look at the newspaper in the ship cabin. Oh, there's a protest meeting in in Boston over the British tax policies. You get to New York City, you pick up the New York newspaper. Oh, they're, they're, they're protesting this too. You get to Philadelphia, Baltimore, and you're finding out, well, hey, wait a minute. There's these protest movements in each major urban areas. And so the ship captains kind of start to, to spread the word and so other important individuals start setting up course committees of correspondence. And so suddenly the, the important leaders in Virginia are writing to the guys in Boston. And again, it was James Madison at one point who said, of the affairs of Georgia, I know as much about them as I do of Kamkatska, which is the middle of nowhere in Russia. Uh, the average American had no idea what was going on 10, 20 miles outside of his or her front door. And now that's, that's starting to change. They're writing, they're linking up and realizing, hey, they're up there protesting the exact same things that we are. All right, so we do have some. There is something, some bond, something that we have in common. That's interesting. So, so the Congress in 1774 endorses the Suffolk Resolves, but but they didn't vote on it. They they they, they agreed that in 75 they would come back and reassess. Back, exactly. Explain that. I mean, how how do you? I mean, what what? Excuse my French. The hell does that mean to endorse something? I mean, you're you're a continental Congress. You endorse the Suffolk Resolves. First of all, why endorse? and agree to come back and reassess. And what exactly was the Suffolk Resolves? Suffolk was just one last, almost a, a final chance for the British to say, hey, come to your senses. Just give us what we want. And again, if you don't do this, we're going to come back. Now, again, there was sort of a veiled hint that when we come back in the spring of 1775, all options are going to be on the table, including perhaps something very drastic, that we're going to make a clean break from you guys once and for all. Many of these guys, you can, we, you'd call them the fiery patriots, the radicals, they're playing the long game. And they know that a lot of the Americans, a lot of the guys in Congress, aren't yet ready for a complete and a formal break. And they know the longer we kind of do, if we give this more time, the British government, they're, they're going to continue to make mistakes. Eventually, these guys are going to have no alternative but to say, oops, our bad, uh, you guys were right all along. So the Suffolk Law and then the Olive Branch petition later on, 
these are the sort of the radicals saying, all right, here, we'll, we'll do what you want because they know the end game. They know that the British aren't going to respond. They're not going to do anything at all. And then they can say, see, we told you so. We tried it your way. What do you got left? It's time to make a break. Okay, when it comes to that, walk me through. There's an old saying in politics, having been in politics, um, they love you or they're afraid of you. Was Patrick Henry so influential because they loved him or they were afraid of him? Patrick Henry was one of those guys you hear about the great orators. And so he was a guy that could just get up there. He'd give a speech. And a lot of guys, not so much today in politics, a lot of politicians, they had an open mind. And they would hear Patrick Henry talk, and it's like, all right, yeah, he's convinced me. There's an old story about Patrick Henry uh, that he was defending a client uh, in, a, in a courtroom, and Patrick Henry thought he was working for the prosecution. And then his client you know, hit him on and said, hey, you're, you're supposed to be defending him. So the jury was like ready to convict, and then Patrick Henry, oh, wait, wait, my, and completely changed it, and then convinced the jury uh, to acquit the guy in the end. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was terrified of Patrick Henry whenever he got up to make a speech, that he could sway an entire room, an entire audience uh, if he got up there. And so he was one of those guys, right? Uh, if you knew Patrick Henry was going to speak, you wouldn't be doing committee work. Uh, you wouldn't be at the tavern. You'd make sure you were in your seat uh, and you'd listen to him. He, just, he was spellbound in an incredible order. It's too bad we don't have recordings. Or uh, And Henry was one of these great individuals who said at the end, uh, burn my papers. He didn't want to be taking victory laps after he was done. So there's just not that many Patrick Henry documents out there as we would like. Who is General Gage, and why is he an, an important figure of the First Continental Congress? Don't know much about about that guy. You've, you've stumped me there. Yeah, but, I'm sorry. But, but, but Gage was the guy that um, dissolved the, Magis- the Massachusetts legislature to begin with. Uh, he began to hear rumors that um he's a british guy yeah, so that's, that, that's right but he's one of those guys he was he's a, a um, guy he was a yankee he was um he was not one on uh he was not on the home team <laughs> so to speak but but he began to hear these rumors that the colonists were stockpiling weapons and gunpowder and right. um and kind of i don't Beats know concocted a plan to try and seize some of the gunpowder and some of the uh some of the weaponry sam that's- adams uh, was was uh, I don't want to say running with. I mean, this isn't a um, you know you don't go to to a nightclub together. This shoe but, fits though. Well, I mean, so, so so Sam Adams' relationship with Patrick Henry was what? Well, they were two individuals of the like mind. Uh, Hancock was the, sort of the the more respected guy, so he was sort of operating kind of behind the scenes, if you will, funneling money to, to Sam Adams and the more militant guys. And so uh, you would say that John Hancock he was supportive of what he wanted. Uh, what we would call plausible deniability, just in case this went, this thing went south. Uh, he didn't want to find himself at the end of a rope. And so, again, he was just kind of protecting himself. Once it sort of reached the point of no return, then he committed himself wholeheartedly and fully uh, to the movement and to the cause. So if the B team, by and large, were sent in 1774, when did the A team get involved? I mean, what, what are the founding fathers doing while the First Continental Congress is convening? Yeah, again, once you get to 1775, now you got a lot of the the who's who. You know, again, Jefferson is now there, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, it's no accident that these guys are now tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence. And so, yeah, once you get to 1775, uh, again, you yeah, know, it's it, it's game on. And and, and, and that's why history gives such a prominent accounting of the Second Continental Congress and not the first? Right. I mean, is that fair to say? The second one is the one that writes the Declaration of Independence, and so that's why that's the better one 
goes down in history. So, so how are, it's <laughs> just a weird question, but I'm going to ask it in a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip kind of way. <laughs> so, so the A-team mitten there in 1774. A lot of the same guys are holdovers. But, but they're the aware of what's happening there. Yeah. Did, did, they, did they wait until 75 to buy in? I mean, I think our listeners would be, I mean, we think Jefferson was there from the beginning and Washington and Franklin and Adams were there from, and they were there from the beginning, but they weren't there for the first Continental Congress. Right. They missed it again. 1775 was when they get, they're there. Uh, 1776 is when we write the Declaration of Independence. The first shots are in April of 1775. And even after that, probably only half of the country is ready for an immediate break. Uh, we've talked about this before. Support for the revolution was uh, was weakest in the South at this time. Uh, the Southern economy, this was a boom period for tobacco. And so your Southern planters realized if we go to war against the mother country, uh, the British Navy, which has been protecting us, helping us transport our crops to market, is now going to be used against us. And so it took a little bit more convincing to get a lot of these guys. Thankfully, Washington from the get-go was on board with the revolution. He becomes the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army in 1775. And so that certainly was a big sort of factor in convincing many Southerners to come along. So the Battle of Lexington and Concord were simultaneous with the Second Continental Congress? Uh, well, it's all going on, yes. April of 1775. And so, again, this was just a... Uh, There's a lot this going is the on. start. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's uh, just, just a few things in American history. Okay, when the Second Continental Congress voted for the Declaration of Independence to establish a new nation, mm-hmm. this, I mean, there, there, there's some historical accounts. I mean, I watched the miniseries John Adams, and they're basically, yeah. well, I mean, they're, they're basically staggering off the battlefield to make sure they're there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Something Is that like a historically that. accurate account of that? It's probably Hollywood taking a little bit, yeah. Superman yeah. didn't fly. Yeah, it's a good way to, if we'd like to think of it like that but most of these guys uh, they're lawyers they're they're politicians they're not out there shouldering up a musket during the american revolution they're safely behind the lines they're they're writing pamphlets encouraging other guys to sort of do their 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 bidding but i mean it is hey somebody's got to lead and somebody's got to put their neck on the line i mean washington is certainly the uh, it doesn't work he's not the the example in that instance i mean he's a wealthy individual one of the wealthiest guys uh, who risked his entire fortune uh, for this for a cause that he thought was just? So when you when, when I think battle, I think Lexington and Concord. What were some of the other battles that were monumentally important at um at the Americans being successful, the United States being successful in um in the Revolutionary War? Well, when you study the the Revolution, the military aspects of it, George Washington loses he more battles. Than he, he was won. not good at it, right? But his philosophy was just keep the army together. He was playing the long game. I mean, he knew the longer this thing goes, uh, the better the chances are. For the, the biggest victory that we have is the, the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. Washington's a couple hundred miles away from this. Now, Washington's maybe best example of generalship is at the very, very end at Yorktown. And this is where many Americans think that there's something providential, that God has really smiled on the United States, the French are trying to decide where are they going to land their troops. And they're looking at maps, and they're looking at all of these ports, and Washington wants them to land in New York City so he can help them. He, they can help him attack New York City, which Washington lost. And the French says, we can't take that. That's too impossible. So they point to a map, and they say, we're going to land at Yorktown. 
Well, that's the exact spot where the British, after they were driven out of South Carolina, are retreating to. So Washington quickly realizes if the French arrive, the British can't get out via sea. So Washington now orders his army. He orders them uh, make ovens, repair the roads, build houses. So it looks like we're going to spend the winter here uh, outside of New York City. The British are fooled. He marches his men down to Yorktown. The British, he was gone for two weeks before the British realized he was on the road. And so he knew all of the roads leading through Virginia, the easiest way to get to Yorktown. And so he traps them, and 7,000 British soldiers are forced to surrender. And this marks the end of the revolution. He but saved his best till the end. Valley Forge would have been one of the, I don't know, the darkest episodes sure. in Washington's Valley. career and, and the American Revolution. Washington never forgot, and Washington was haunted to his final day, what he called blood in the snow. And Washington's troops didn't didn't have anything on their feet. Cold and hungry. Exactly. And the, the weather was so cold, their feet cracked. And so when they were on patrol or just when they walked to a latrine, it was like a horror movie. You saw bloody footprints in the snow. And Washington never forgot that. They spent two winters at Morristown where they had to endure six blizzards uh, when you thought the Buffalo Bills football game was fun to watch. Uh, can you imagine, right, just being a soldier with just a single blanket, no shelter, nothing on your feet and having to endure multiple blizzards. And these guys, they made these sacrifices, and uh, thank God for us today that they did. No question about it. They, they basically endured on uh, what they call fire cake. Yes. I mean, it was water and flour. There was no meat, no protein. Um, they, they lived off really and truly water and flour, three meals a day or as many meals as they could possibly get. And I think Dr. Bolt did a good job of, I mean, Washington died, and you got to believe one of the last thoughts to run through his head was Valley Forge and how decimated and how yeah. desperate uh, the he men that he cared it. so deeply about uh, and the set of circumstances they were having to do battle uh, under. And I, I just think that's an important lesson and an important story for all of us to, I mean, it was not pretty. I mean, it was not glamorous. I mean, it, it was tremendous, tremendous sacrifice. Talking about being the overwhelming underdog. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll sure be thing. back. In just a few moments. Got a few moments here with Dr. Will Bolt, history chair of Francis Marion University. A um, kind of a su- He's a specialist in early American history with a subspecialty in Andrew Jackson. You got uh, it. Old Hickory. Okay, so in 1776, we talked about the First Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress. I mean, that's when the moving and shaking started happening. Oh, yeah. But in 1776, we adopted a Declaration of Independence. In 1787... We um, adopted a constitution. So I got to believe those 11 years were just honeymoon. I mean, from <laughs> the time we adopted the Declaration of Independence until we um, declared the constitution, our guiding light. I mean, those 11 years, everything's perfect. Nothing to see here. We've um, escaped British rule. Uh, you're you're kind of like laughing as if that's not the case. Yeah, for, for one of the few times, right, in your, in your career, you're, you're wrong there, <laughs> my good sir. No, this is sort of a, a black hole in American history, all sorts of problems. Uh, you have a very, very weak governing document at the top, the Articles of Confederation, but many of the states have rewritten their state constitutions, and most of them that was said they suffered from an excess of democracy, meaning it was just too difficult, almost impossible to get anything accomplished. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania is the best example. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania, in its constitution of 1776, said, in order for a bill to become a law, the legislature has to pass it, you have to have an election, and then the next legislature has to pass that same bill. So again, two legislatures after an election have to pass it. You think it's tough to get anything done today, 
uh, in Washington. Can you imagine if two legislatures after an election? Wow. It, it, it's, a, it's a recipe for gridlock and anarchy. Many of the states, if they had a governor, uh, he had no powers. And in several of the states, the only way he would get paid would be if the legislature passed a special bill to give him money. So the governor naturally had to kiss the rear end and be nice to the legislation. There was no really separation of powers. If you At the national level, all you have is Congress. There's no executive, no national system of courts. Uh, the government doesn't even have the power to tax the people. Uh, that's how afraid we were, were, upset that the British had abused it. So we didn't trust the national government to tax us. The only way the government could get money was it had to ask the states. And most of the states, when they were asked for money, would maybe just give a fraction of what they were asked for or, or say, oh, that, that letter must have got lost in the mail. Yeah, I don't, I don't. And then finally, when pressed, they would say, we don't have any money to give you. And so there were just a whole series of problems. Uh, we've talked about some of them before. Shays' Rebellion. Uh, the British refused to vacate their troops from North America because they knew the government was powerless to force them. And this is what, of course, leads us to our Constitution of 1787. So who initiates the talk of a Constitution? <clears throat> uh, I mean, who would have been the instigators? I mean, uh, who, who, who got everybody in the room or got everybody rallying around a common document? It's really two guys. It's, it's Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, two great thinkers, uh, hyper-nationalists who didn't really, at the time, believe much in states' rights, believe we needed a stronger government with consolidated power, and it's really just an incredible effort by these two individuals to convince many of the Americans that uh, the Articles of Confederation are broken beyond repair. We have to have a stronger system of government. If we don't, this great experiment in, democ in democracy is going to end. Uh, the states are now going to start competing and warring with one another. Uh, we had trade wars, competing tariffs. And so, again, what's going to happen is the states are going to start breaking apart. They'll make them prime for the British maybe to, to pick them off. So again, if we don't do something, all of this hard work in the revolution is going to be for naught. So Jefferson was not sympathetic to the Constitution? Jefferson, this is the... the but he's great, in France, right? Jefferson and John Adams are two great constitutional thinkers are on the other side of the world in our most desperate hour when we need them most. Two guys who probably would have had a whole lot to say and would have been the movers and shakers had they been in Philadelphia. Or been or been the two that prohibited it from ever getting done. So yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, th There's some rumors, and you've heard this scholarly debate. Um, they sent Jefferson to France to get him out of the way so they yeah. could compromise and come up with some reasonable documentation. But but when, um, when Jefferson or Adams were asked to opine on the Constitution, what sort of comments did they make? No, they both originally supported it. John Adams liked it a lot more than Jefferson. And Jefferson's, of course, I think I've told the story, but Madison mails a copy to Jefferson, who's in Paris, and he writes back and says, this is great, Jim. I love it. Where's the rest? And then Madison says, I, I sent you the whole thing, Tom. Let me put, put your glasses on. And then Jefferson says, oh. And, of course, Jefferson believed there should have been a, a Bill of Rights included. And then Madison said, well, no, it's a government of limited powers. Uh, it, it can only exercise the powers that we've given it. All of the state constitutions have Bill of Rights. The rights will be protected. Uh, but many Americans began saying, all right, we like the Constitution. We'll support it, but we need a Bill of Rights in there. So why did it take from 1787 to 1791 to get a Bill of Rights? The, the, the Constitution was ratified in 1787, right? That's, it's finished in 87. It's 
nine states ratified in 1788. Okay, year. 1788, it's ratified as law of the land, so to yep. speak. So we wait until 1791. Am I, am I right before, with the date? Before right, we, we have a Bill of Rights. We start working on them in 1789 right away. And then, of course, they, they go to the states. The original Bill of Rights included 12, 12 amendments. Only The states only ratified 10 of them. And then in 1791, they're officially become the law of the land. And then once the Bill of Rights are included, uh, the two last holdouts, Rhode Island and North Carolina, uh, finally approved the Constitution. And so all 13 states are reunited once again. So is Jefferson and Adams more, um, more? I mean, are, are they more willing to negotiate the Bill of Rights? I mean, they, they, they were not excluded, but they didn't have as uh, much of a say in the Constitution as Madison and and um and uh, Hamilton. Hamilton did, the but but did they participate at a high level with the Bill of Rights? Uh, Jefferson. Was, a lot of the the Bill of Rights are sort of cribbed from Thomas Jefferson. Uh, a lot of them were driven taken directly from the Virginia because it's exactly what rights. it says. It's the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, the good writers borrow the great ones. The mm-hmm. great ones steal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, again, if had Jefferson had his way, you know, the Bill of Rights probably would have been a hundred. Bill of Rights, you know, every little possible single little thing. But again, Madison got himself appointed in charge of the committee. Uh, there were several hundred amendments that were proposed, and anything which fundamentally altered the new government, Madison uh, quickly discarded. I mean, we're not changing the the time period. We're not taking away any powers from Congress. Uh, these are again eight of the original ten Bill of Rights dealt with personal liberties, and so hence. Uh, the Bill of Rights. Only the Ninth and Tenth Amendment uh, didn't deal with specifically rights for the American people. And these negotiations are no longer in Philadelphia, but rather New York. Is that correct? Again, a lot of the, the states, when they were ratifying it, they would say, all right, we're going to ratify it, but we expect you to act on these amendments at some point down the road. And again, there's sort of a caveat, right? If you don't include these, these, these Bill of Rights that we want, include these amendments, then perhaps we're going to withdraw our ratification. We're going to secede. Uh, so again, even though enough of the states had ratified, there was still some important work to be done. Had the founding fathers simply said, no, our work is perfect as it is. We're not including any amendments, any Bill of Rights. This perhaps could have opened up a whole new can of worms. And then thankfully, the Bill of Rights were included. So Adams is the president during the Constitution and Bill of Rights? Or is Washington the Washington, president right. during the Constitution and Adams Washington during the— Washington right after the Constitution goes into effect and while the Bill of Rights are included, yes. Now, again, the president doesn't have any role in this, but Washington was certainly at least sympathetic to it. Not because Washington is the pragmatist, and Washington says, this is what the people want. Let's, let's get this done. So Washington is, of course, writing to people in the other states, hey, support these amendments, get them through— this will strengthen this this new government. We need this. So the the um the the, the takeaway is it's our government's always been slow. Oh, you're talking about a year until I mean, we get real frustrated because things don't happen fast enough, and we need we need this to be done today or tomorrow. It makes too yeah. much sense. Why won't this be done before dark um, today? <laughs> the, the the experiment of American government has strongly suggested that slow is best throughout our history. Right? Again, very very rarely. Right? Maybe only. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, or when we approach the dreaded fiscal cliff, right, and we need to extend the debt ceiling, only then do we kind of act and we'll have a, a midnight session. But right, most of the time, it's, hey, this is what the founding fathers had wanted. This is a deliberative 
process. And you're not just going to wake up and say, hey, guess what, guys? Uh, let's pass this bill today, pass it through the House and Senate, and have the president sign it uh, and have it go into effect tomorrow. It just that's not how the Founding Fathers envisioned it. Very interesting. Let's shift gears and go away from um, Jefferson oh. and Adams and Madison and go to Tennessee and Clemson. So uh, Bolt's a big Buffalo Bill fan and a big Tennessee volunteer fan. He said he went to Tennessee because they said yes. Yep. Um, I, I, can, I can relate to that. I can very much relate to that. But but uh, that, that was Andrew Jackson's stomping grounds, mm-hmm. so to speak. I would imagine uh, that left some impression on you. So Influence, the, the yeah. volunteers have a bowl game. You and I will not speak before the bowl game between Tennessee and Clemson. So um, uh, g- give me your analysis, not of early American history, but rather the um, the Orange Bowl between your beloved Tennessee Volunteers and many of our listeners' beloved Clemson and Tigers. Whereas lots of Carolina fans are quick to point out, though, we lost to South Carolina, the football game. So. I call it the Shane Beamer's Your Daddy Bowl. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. Well, heaven help me if Tennessee loses – because my team will have lost to both Clemson and South Carolina. I won't be able to hold my head up high <laughs> in this state at all. So, yeah, I don't know. Lots of Tennessee players are not going to play. I, I've got four years of eligibility left. I, I keep checking my phone. Uh, you'll know they get really desperate if they're, if they're calling me to come out and play for them. But hey, if you'd have told me in September that Tennessee would be playing in the Orange Bowl about, against Clemson, hey, sign me up. I mean, this is a, a big, big step for a— a once proud program that had fallen on some really hard times. I think South Tennessee is certainly trending up. I think Heupel's a good guy. He's the kind of coach you want, an offensive genius who's at least going to make it going to make it interesting. And Clemson, well, has kind of found their quarterback, unfortunately. So I think we we might be walking into a buzzsaw. But I, I hope it's a good, fun game. The bowl games just don't mean as much as they used to this since so many players and are opting out. And it's not just out. the playoff, Dr. Bolt. It's the fact that these kids opt out. Yeah. You know, they decide not to play. Jalen Hyatt right, decided of, not to play. Probably the best receiver guys. in the country mm-hmm. this year. And um, I, I just, I mean, if you're going to play, let's play. If you're going to, right. I know, I just get real frustrated. The game of college football is changing in such an amazing and fast-paced yes. way. It's just fundamental. So do they win or not against the uh, the Clemson Tigers? I hope so. If you have that, <laughs> it gets some sort of redemption for me. But yeah, like I said, a couple weeks ago, Clemson was kind of struggling, and now maybe they've 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 hit their stride, if you will. You know, hey, this isn't Sweeney's first rodeo. He's got a month to prepare. That guy's a good coach, and so he's he's going to have some tricks up his sleeve. Yeah, Heupel's a good guy as well. So I hope there'll be a lot of points, an exciting game. And again, I'm just going to watch it to enjoy it. I hope Tennessee wins for sure. It'd be nice to have some bragging rights. For sure, but gotcha. Just say the the fact that Tennessee is there and back in a New Year's game that that's pretty good. Merry Christmas, sir, and so and good luck to the Gamecocks as well. I will yeah. root for them this we, time. We play the Catholic University of America. <laughs> uh, the same. I think Clemson play Clemson Tennessee or at about eight that night or eight thirty that night. No. The Gamecocks and Irish play at three thirty that afternoon and next the, Friday, New Year's Eve Eve. Is when the the Gator and Orange Bowl are. Yeah, we're the we're the main event. I don't want to. Nah, you're the main event. Pray. No, the main event's the next night. Yeah. When, yeah, when yeah. TCU plays uh, Michigan, <laughs> when the playoffs, and Ohio State plays Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, those are the um the fourteen playoffs that have yeah. so watered down the college football postseason. Merry Christmas, Dr. Merry Bowl. Christmas, are you and all the listeners? Thank yes, you sir. Guys. We'll take a break. We'll all be back in just a few moments. You know, one of the old sayings: "Be careful what you ask for." I mean, imagine winning a revolutionary war taking ownership of an entire nation. Now, this is pre-Louisiana Purchase. That would have been in 1802 or three. I think 1803, 
the Louisiana Purchase. But but most people, I mean, Dr. Bolt is a historian. I mean, he has a uh, a vast understanding of early American history. I'm enough to be dangerous. I mean, I've read enough about it to be you know quasi dangerous. But when you think about 1776, I mean, there's a, a kind of a romantic uh, vision we have: the founding of a nation. What could go wrong now? We win a revolutionary war. We're in possession of our own fate and future. I mean, what more could you ask for? Well, I mean, think about starting a nation. I mean, I know how hard it is to start a business or start a radio show or start the day off. I mean, imagine being in ownership of an entire nation, a new way of believing and, and, and doing things and governing yourself. And imagine how unique it was to human history at that time. I mean, we're going to allow man we're going to allow the common man to vote for other common men if they choose to be in charge of a an aspiring nation. I mean, how do we not expect that to be a bumpy road? And it was from 1776 to 1787 when we adopted and ratified the Constitution. And I think a lot of people see that as kind of a Norman Rockwell painting. We win the war. We defeat the British, um, the Red Sea parts, and, you know, the um, the people are freed no, we wandered around in the wilderness, maybe not for 40 years, uh, or in the desert, maybe not for 40 years, but for about 10 or 11 years. And I've always felt it was interesting when you read um, about the, 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 the banning about of the Constitution, who was for it, who was against it. Um, there are some historians who believe, as Dr. Bolt mentioned, I don't think he gave an opinion one way or the other, but, but a lot of people believe that they kept Jefferson in France they knew he liked wine and women. Um, so if you keep him occupied in France, he's not able to meddle in the affairs of a compromise called the Constitution. Because Jefferson was not a very compromising um, sort of person. Um, he and Hamilton had this great debate that you know shaped American politics for the first, what, half century of his existence? Uh, maybe longer than that. Might have been 60 or 70. Some would debate we're still arguing over Hamiltonian principles and Jeffersonian principles, but I think it's important to learn and understand that from 1776 to 1787, it was quite the bumpy road. I mean, it didn't go as planned or expected. I got to believe there were a number of quote-unquote Americans who said, screw this. I mean, the British weren't perfect, but I like that better than I do this because you've got no, uh, you, I mean, you, you don't have any reputation. I mean, who trades with you? A lot of the reason Jefferson was in France was to create, you know, financial arrangements and, and trade partnerships with uh, some of these foreign governments or foreign countries that had been established much longer th than America had. So 1776, 1787, 1791, uh, those three dates matter a lot to me because they are, I don't know, uh, free, uh, the official declarations uh, here's what we're doing. Here's what we did. Here's what we're doing now. Here's what we did. And then it culminates with 1791 and the Bill of Rights. Um, and then imagine 10 years, well, 12 years later, yeah, 1791, 1803, 12 years later, you double the size of the country by executing the Louisiana Purchase. You know, we're talking about fusion. I'm not smart enough. I mean, I don't care how much I read about fusion. I doubt I'd very, ever understand it. I mean, I accept my um, aptitude limitations. I'm probably not smart enough to be a nuclear physicist or scientist, but I can understand American history. You know, you, some of you out there may have the ability to understand some of the um, 
some of the uh, National Ignition Facility conducted the first controlled fusion experiment in history. And um, some of you are smart enough to understand that. I'm convinced I'm not. And I, I just don't have the intellectual horsepower to go down that scientific trail. But I can understand American history. I can be aware of where I come from and why it should matter and, and how it affects or influences or shapes the way I see the world today. And I would encourage uh, a lot of our listeners to uh, don't spend as much time worrying about nuclear fusion and energy reacting as much as you do, you know, early American history, which is the bedrock and fundamental principles of, of who we are today. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We're waiting. We think for Fox News Radio's Evan Brown to call in. He's supposed to call it at nine oh five, but you never know. A lot of things kicking outside of politics today. The biggest story in America right now is this Siberian Express, this cold weather that we think is going to make its way further south than normal, and we're going to have a bomb cyclone. Uh, I don't want a bomb cyclone. <laughs> I just it doesn't sound like something. That's going to be very enjoyable, but they're saying the wind chill in the South by Friday could be zero. Let me say that again. They're saying the wind chill in the South by Saturday could be zero. They're saying in certain places in Arkansas, um, Tennessee, Texas, maybe not quite as far east as South Carolina, but the Siberian Express is a big cold, a mass of cold air. And it's going to work further south than normal because of some other uh, extenuating circumstances in the weather. And um, it could be uh, the coldest Christmas we've had in maybe 20 or 25 years. Um, I did see uh, Freehold. You're, you're from up north, so you're accustomed to some of this cold weather. But um, it looks to me now in some of the modeling, and once again, American modeling, European modeling, um, I'm not talking about Victoria's Secret modeling. I'm talking about weather modeling here. Stick with me for a second. Um, it seems to me that we're sure we're getting Arctic air. I mean, we're going to get really, really cold weather uh, by Christmas. But it looks like now some of the projections have the the precipitation. By that mean, I'm talking about snow and freezing rain. We're going to get some rain today and tomorrow, maybe a little bit on Thursday. By Friday, it gets real windy real cold. We may try to reach out to Jamie Arnold tomorrow when Rev's here to get him to come on and see if he can explain it better than I just did. But um, but but here's the skinny. We're going to have a bomb cyclone. We're going to have some rain. But but on the other side of this rain is, is really, really, really Arctic air that hardly ever gets this far down south. But it looks like Friday and Saturday, maybe even Sunday, it's going to get extremely cold here. And I'm talking about wind chills at zero or maybe even less than zero in some places. The uh, the snow looks like it will probably more in the Midwest uh, part of the country, Chicago, Green Bay, the areas that get a lot of snow. Um, but, but the cold weather is going to be here to stay for three or four or five days. So begin thinking about winterizing your home. I don't want to say go gas up the generator, but but be prepared for really, really cold weather, really, really high winds for 28 to 48 hours around Christmas. And um, and we'll see about the uh, the ice and snow as the weather progresses. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Uh, who is this? Where are you calling from? Okay. Is someone there? Hey, this is David. How you doing, my man? Hey, David. How are you? Good, good. Uh, you brought up two names earlier in the program. Uh, 
Sarah Palin and Jennifer Granholm. A little bit. What what do they have in common? There's something they have in common. But y'all being women. Hmm. They're governors, former governors. Absolutely. I'm gonna take you back in time. Uh, who was the 2008 vice presidential candidate in 2008? That would have been Sarah Palin. I'm talking about Democrat. Oh, uh, 2008. I don't know. Joe Biden. Okay. Guess who portrayed Sarah Palin in the mock debates? Uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Granholm. Granholm. I did read that. There you go. You're right. I did read that it's one. Amazing. Day. It's amazing how that works, didn't it? Uh, and I think about Secretary of Energy. Uh, I think about people like Bill Richardson, a politician. Um, let's go. I'll be fair. Let's think about Trump, Secretary of Energy, a guy named Rick Perry. And I don't even know what, what was he, – he had a debate where he was going to get rid of some cabinet positions, but um, – He forgot anyway. the Department of um, Education. I mean, he, he tried Education. to list the three that he was going to abolish, and he couldn't think of the third one. But, I, I, you know, what, what, what kind of bothers me when you watch this whole thing unfold uh, is that, yeah, what does CNN – what do they know about fusion – Nothing, but they know a lot about confusion. And see, when Granholm, no, and I just mentioned, she's just a political player. But when she's out of power, when the Democrats out of out of power, where does she work at? At one of the news agencies, normally at CNN, CNN. or MSNBC CNN. or somebody. She, yeah, she's either going to work for a think tank, academia, and now you see how this works. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to leave you this. I'm going to be fair. I mean, at least Rick, Rick Perry, he worked. I think he comes on Fox, whatever. You get Trey, he worked for Fox. Uh, you know, a lot of these people, that that's what they do. They they have turned this whole thing into an industry. I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. And and we just but we began the show. We did begin the show. At some point early this morning, we went down the road of this this fusion breakthrough that we've been led to believe is an energy story. And it's not an energy story by any stretch. Well, the reason it's being portrayed as an energy story is it supports the Biden agenda. You know, the decarbonizing of the powering of the American economy is, is kind of something the, the Democrats and liberal America bought into hook, line and sinker. Uh, Joe Biden announced on a stage in a presidential debate that he was going to um, emit zero carbon by 2035 um, but that's unrealistic. That's not achievable. That's not possible. Um, imagine, I, I thought about this as we were talking about the bomb cyclone and, and, and sub, you know, sub zero temperatures and the free, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Real feel or, um, uh, the wind chill effect, I guess is what it's called. Um, we're, 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 we're trying to portray this energy breakthrough as if it's, excuse me, this fusion breakthrough as if it's an energy story, and it's simply not. It has nothing to do, I guess, you know, 100 years from now, it may have something to do with energy. But um, but you've got Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm basically arguing that this is a, um, a, a confirmation or affirmation to the Biden goal of, once again, net zero carbon economy, um, this clean fusion technology. Um, it's the game changer. It, uh, it shows us that we were right, and you guys that you were wrong, the naysayers. But then you talk to Bob Rosner, who is a physicist at the University of Chicago. He's a former director 
of the Argonne National Laboratory, uh, has been a longtime board member of the um, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientist um, Science and Security Board. I mean, the guy knows what he's talking about. It's a little bit like Robert Malone. I mean, Robert Malone got deplatformed despite being one of the creators, one of the inventors of the mRNA technology. But when you look at what Bob Rosner said, it's totally different from what Jennifer Granholm said. And energy can be politicized. It already has been politicized. Drill, baby, drill. Talking about um, Sarah Palin a second ago. Um, but then you you listen to what, what Bob Rosner says, and he basically says that it's a bunch of BS. I mean, it's nowhere near what they're portraying it um, to be, and he breaks it down in a fairly understandable way, as far as I'm concerned, when he says that, um, I mean, he gives kind of an accounting of what exactly is happening and what has to happen, uh, and it's impossible. I mean, it's impossible. Um, it, was a, it was a breakthrough. There's no doubt about it, but it's not an energy story and probably won't be an energy story for as long as I'm alive. Um how long will it take? Decades and decades and decades and decades. So um, so David's exactly right. The politicization of every story that comes down the pike, um, the selling of a narrative to every consumer in politics in America today. And, and I do believe this, Freehold. I think the debate Jeff and I had is probably more interesting than any debate CNN will have today because it's a debate. I mean, it's one guy who believes one thing, you know, not against another guy, but juxtaposed to another guy who believes something different. And it's not a a competition. I mean, I'm not trying to compete with Jeff. Um, Jeff has a certain belief about Trump. I have a different belief about Donald Trump. And, And I think the way the American public are served is having that debate night after night after night after night. And we don't allow that debate. You know, I'll, I'll win some debates and I'll lose some debates. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of that. I mean, I've not won every debate I've ever been in, but because I've not been right in every debate. But, but if you want to stop the debate from ever taking place, it's hard to be wrong. I mean, if big tech, big government, big media decide what the American people can be exposed to in matters of, uh, of information, um, it's hard to believe something if you don't hear about it. I mean, do you, do you believe Aaron Rodgers is a great quarterback? I mean, I do. I think Aaron Rodgers plays the position at times better than anybody I've ever seen. He's on the backside of a career, no doubt about it. But you know why I believe Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks ever lived? Because I've seen him play. I mean, I don't take somebody's word for it. I mean, I've watched the guy play. Nobody's told me, hey, you can't watch this Green Bay Packer team. You know, they've got this guy playing quarterback, and you may think he, we're saying he's no good. And if we allow you to watch him play, you'll say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, what the media has done is decide to not let us watch the Green Bay Packers. You know, we've got to decide their interpretation of whether Aaron Rodgers is any good or not. Um, can Lionel Messi play soccer? Yes. I mean, no question about it. He's one of the best players of all time. Uh, Argentina won a World Cup. Messi wins a World Cup as the Argentine capital. Um, how, do, how do we know that? We watched the game. We saw that. The, the media, big tech, big government, uh, big media are deciding now we're not going to let you watch the game. We'll tell you what kind of player Messi is. We'll tell you what kind of quarterback Aaron Rodgers is. And that's a disservice to the public. And the country will pay a price if we continue to normalize that abnormal behavior. Let us decide. Let us have a January 6th commission. And let it be um, fairly presented. Let, let Democrats ask tough questions. Let Republicans ask tough questions. And let's find out if Trump is a criminal or not. 
I mean, the referral doesn't mean anything today because, once again, it's a political witch hunt. Half the country believes it's an absolute political witch hunt. You can't, you can't ask a country to move forward as one when half the country believes a former president has been so terribly mistreated. If Jim Jordan had been on that committee and if Banks, or Representative Banks had been on that committee, can't think of his first name, uh, but if those two guys had been on that committee and they asked the tough questions and you still come out with referrals and it's unanimous, the country would say, well, apparently Trump did something that causes them to believe he broke the law. But you've got nine members. You've got seven Democrats, two Republicans. Everyone on that committee voted to impeach the former president at least once. Seven voted to impeach him twice. So there's, what, 16 impeachments. They went 16 and two in impeachment votes. I'm not talking about votes against his agenda. I'm not talking about votes against his veto. 16 impeachment votes. I'm going to imagine that, the rarity of an impeachment. Has there ever been a committee put together in Washington that included 16 members who have impeachment belts on their impeachment votes on their resume? No, of course not. And there shouldn't be. But but we have so politicized everything. And the point I try to make to to, um, to Jeff, the point I try to make to Williams, the point I'll make to our listeners, um, when it comes to the First Amendment, whether you believe the 2020 election was stolen or not, whether you believe there were um, statistical anomalies that nobody's ever been able to explain or not, whether you believe that, that Trump has argued too forcefully, too um, misleading a way, n- none of that matters. I mean, that is a politician deceiving his followers. That is a politician um, playing politics, and that is not against the law. Politicians do that all the time. They've always done that. They will always do that. The Justice Department has no authority, as far as I'm concerned, to police partisan deceit. It's not a criminal conspiracy to mislead your voters. I mean, if we're going to turn misleading your voters into a criminal conspiracy, the prisons will be full of politicians. There will be very few politicians roaming the street. There will be far more politicians incarcerated than there are in um in your diners and your in your ball games and throwing the first pitches out at baseball games. Um, that they'll all be in jail. I mean, if that's where we're headed, and it seems to me the liberals have become so ambitious in their pursuit of Trump that they're just throwing the rule books of what we've normally done and how we've normally done and where we've normally done aside. Got to get this guy. This guy is so much a threat to democracy. Let me ask you a question. Is Trump deceiving voters a bigger threat to democracy than $31 trillion of federal debt? Because everybody on that commission is a member of Congress, and nobody except Congress has appropriated any money to be spent in our federal government. I mean, I've never voted on a federal budget. Have you, Freehold? I don't think you have. Maybe in your spare time. You, you, you vote on, but I mean, nobody has. So what they're arguing is there's this cowboy who won't do things the way they're supposed to be done. And there's this following he has that won't behave the way we need them to behave. And because of that, we're going to label them a threat to democracy. We're going to charge them with insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States and conspiracy to make a false statement to the government. Now they know as well as I do. You may not, but I know 
that the the congressional referral to the Justice Department has the legal force of a a post-it note that I put on the glass for for freehold to read. I mean, it means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. There is an individual named um, Jack Smith. He is investigating former President Trump on behalf of the Justice Department, and we'll find out what is and what ain't when it comes to Trump. But, But when I read the referral, the most concerning and alarming part of the referral to me is they're making it appear that that Trump does not, because Trump intentionally misled a group of followers, he broke the law. I ran for office eight times in my life. My name's been on the ballot eight separate times. I'll confess. You ready? Give me a Bible. Hand on the Bible. Have you ever misled um, your voters? Yes. Have you ever intentionally misled your voters? Yes. Have you ever been less than honest with your voters? Yes. Have you ever been less than forthright with your voters? Yes. Why did you do that? To win. To win. To tell them what they wanted to hear at times because I wanted to win. That's why I put my name on that sign. I didn't put my name on a sign to crusade. I put my name on a sign to win. And at times, winning requires politically deceiving groups of people. See, I'll admit it. That's proof I'm never running again. Because if I did run now, they'd say, well, the other guy admitted he deceived us. I mean, every, every one of those political leaders are trying to deceive you in some way, shape, or form. Political spin is one of the, uh, it's kind of a, an accepted norm in the world of politics. But it's certainly a criminal conspiracy. Because once again, if politicians misleading followers to the point of them engaging in whatever sort of activity they engage in, it doesn't excuse the behavior. See, I can hear someone now saying, well, Ard's excusing the behavior. No, I'm not excusing the behavior at all. Those people have been, will be, and are held accountable. But Trump didn't kick a glass down. Trump didn't break a door. We don't know what Trump did behind the scenes to instigate or not the behavior of some of his followers. Not most of his followers, certainly not all of his followers, but some of his followers absolutely misbehaved. And they're being held accountable in a very, very aggressive fashion. But but to suggest that Donald Trump doesn't have a right to say the election was stolen, that people don't have a right to believe the election was stolen, that's a criminal conspiracy? Okay. Let's, let, let's, let's hold everybody to that standard. Let's hold every elected official in America to that very standard. And you know what will be empty next week? The halls of Congress. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us from our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good morning to you. So the January sixth committee held its final hearing. They voted and, uh, and voted to criminally refer President Donald Trump to the Justice Department. What do we make of that? Well, it's largely symbolic, right? Because the Justice Department, one, doesn't need a recommendation from Congress to, to move on an indictment. They also don't have to follow uh, the recommendation of uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. But listen, this was a significant historic step. A House committee has never before referred criminal charges against a former president of the United States. And specifically, the, the committee says they believe four crimes were committed, including um, incitement or assisting or aiding and abetting, aiding and comforting, I think is the phrase, uh, a, an insurrection. 
uh, related to what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, again, the, the Justice Department has already started these investigations. We actually think they're pretty far afield, right? There is a special counsel that is overseeing two separate investigations related uh, to the former president. One involves sort of this outreach that was made to state officials about overturning or delaying certification of the electoral vote. Uh, there is a second investigation as it relates to these uh, classified documents, classified materials that uh, were improperly stored at Mar-a-Lago. And so um, those decisions are going to be made uh, by the special counsel, by the Justice Department, with or without a, a recommendation from Congress. Um, but Listen, there was a lot of pressure on the uh, committee to wrap up its work here before the end of the year. Um, they have done so. Uh, they will have a final report that is released uh, tomorrow, we believe, uh, that will include all of its findings. Um, it will have uh, the transcripts from all of these depositions. There were a thousand interviews done. It will have recommendations as it relates to law enforcement, as it relates to Congress. Um, and so this really is sort of the, the capstone uh, event here for this uh, January 6th committee that certainly won't be constituted, at least in the way that it's constituted now, uh, next year when Republicans are in control of the House. And, Jared, that was my question. I mean, I've got a theory that the Republicans would be better served. It's not your job to decide what's better for Republicans or Democrats as a journalist. But I've got a theory that if the Republicans were to continue the January 6th commission, not abandon the commission, but but rather make it more by let Hakeem Jeffries put on whatever Democrats he chooses. Maybe it legitimizes. I mean, half the country don't trust the commission. You know that I know that, but, but to gain some credibility of that half continue the commission, but allow for a more bipartisan approach. Is that something that you hear rumblings about in Washington? If there were to be some sort of select committee as it relates to January 6th and the new Congress, I think you were going to see the focus on a couple of things. I think you're going to see the focus on the decision-making process as it relates to the National Guard and bringing in additional personnel as these sort of threat assessments were, were coming across different uh, wires, right? Uh, that is something that, that Kevin McCarthy has talked about. But, you know, I was struck yesterday by a, uh, a statement that was made by um, Alyssa Stefanik, who is the number three uh, House Republican. She is the uh, conference uh, chairperson. And she said that there's going to be accountability for Democrats and these never Trumpers, as she puts it, um, for abuse of power. And so it sounds like part of what they want to do as well is sort of see if uh, there were any violations made by, by this committee. Now, that being said, uh, remember, a few of these members aren't going to be in the next Congress, right? You have um, uh, Adam Kinzinger, who retired, isn't, did not run for re-election. Uh, uh, Liz Cheney, who lost her Republican primary to a Republican challenger. And Elaine Luria uh, from Virginia, who lost in the general election in a pretty close race. So, um, you know, one way or another, the, the work of the committee, the makeup of the committee, the look of the committee is going to be far different in the next Congress. Well explained, Jared. Thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. That's kind of an interesting perspective. I'm mean, inside the belly of the beast, so to speak, as we like to, to say here on Wake Up Carolina in Washington, D.C. I think the moral of this story is the Democrats have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're playing for keeps. Jared just said for the first time in American history, a special committee has referred the former president or sitting president of the United States of America to be charged with some sort of crime. 
I mean, that's never happened before in American history. What do Republicans have to have happen to, to show them that the Democrats don't have guardrails? Everything is in bounds. Now, now, once again, we can debate the charges. Insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make a false statement to the government. I mean, that those are subjective charges. Those are the pronouncements that the committee made. Now, now once again, there'll be follow-up reports. There'll be uh, more analytical information that follows. Uh, you got to believe it'll be incredibly one-sided. It'll be, a, um, it'll be like prosecution 101. But I think the, the takeaway, the moral of the story, for me personally, is the Democrats have no guardrails. Whatever it takes to win, they're willing to do it. And either the Republicans will decide to play under those rules. Remember what I told you guys. When the rules are, there are no rules. Stick with me for a second. When the rules are, there are no rules, you better play by the rules better than anybody. So the Democrats have already suggested there are no rules. We will do something that has never been done before. We'll do it in the most partisan fashion imaginable because that's what we do. And either the Republicans adhere to the principles and values of traditional politics or they accept that things are different. And if you accept that things are different, you go after Democrats. You try to seek and destroy Democrat leadership. You you try to, I mean, basically you put them on trial. I mean, you you have a chairman of a, a House Oversight Committee. You have a chairman of a House Judiciary Committee. Maybe you keep this um, select committee in place or not. Obviously, you'll change some of the membership because Kinzinger and, and Cheney won't be members of Congress anymore. And you seek and destroy Democrats. I mean, that's what you do. You, you find out the origin of COVID, who ran interference for the CDC and NIH. You get Fauci and some of his surrogates on, on stage, um, some of the lockdown proponents, some of the uh, mandate vaccine, advanced vaccine mandate proponents, and you just find out whether or not they were telling the truth. Now, now, the one thing I'd like to see Republicans do, and, and maybe I'm wrong here. I mean, I don't want to stack the deck. I mean, I want to have a, a fair bipartisan effort to get to the bottom of it. And I like my chances. If, if, if Jordan's the chairman of judiciary and there's a new chairman of oversight, I can't think of his name now, but there will be a new chairman of oversight. I mean, those are the two investigatory committees. And let's get aggressive. I mean, let, let, let's, let's put Fauci under oath. Or at least make him deny coming. Let's you know make him plead the fifth under oath. But but I mean he may be arrogant enough to testify, you know because I am science and how dare you argue with with science. But I think the, the I mean the the takeaway to me is what the Democrats have proven is the new normal. Standards be damned. Traditions gone out of the window. Respect and decorum no longer exist. And it's kind of interesting to me. I mean I put on Twitter yesterday. Trump broke Washington. I mean, as, 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 as much as they disrespected the way Trump operated, as much as they said, I mean, he's breaking the mold, all, all, the, all the formal standards and all the things we have stood for traditionally and historically in our government, I mean, he just throws caution to the wind and, and just, you know, basically obliterates any sort of standard or normalcy we've had. Well, I mean, look at what you've done. I mean, if Trump didn't break Washington— Explain why they did something they've never done before in American history. And I'm talking about including some of the, I mean, the rebels and renegades of Andrew Jackson. I mean, imagine, is Trump more, I mean, is Trump cut out of a different cloth than every president since then? No, the one thing Trump did 
was reveal how corrupt Washington was. Somebody said yesterday in one of the articles I read about the problem with the 22 midterms is the Senate leadership didn't have a vision. They were talking about Walker and Laxalt and, and Masters and Oz in particular, and they didn't have a vision. They didn't have a clear-minded vision about where they wanted to carry the country. McConnell has a vision. McConnell has a platform. McConnell has an agenda, but it's not in alignment with the American people. So when your agenda and platform are not aligned with the American public, you don't tell them what that agenda is. It's a globalist, interventionist, corporatist agenda. But McConnell's not going to go out and say, hey, vote for Republicans so we can implement a globalist, interventionist, corporatist agenda that is bad for the American family and the American worker. But, but to suggest that, Glenn, that the Senator, excuse me, that Mitch McConnell does not have an agenda, do you really believe that? Somebody is methodical and, and, is, and is, has been around Washington as long. Do you think he was caught napping? Really? Mitch McConnell knows everything that needs to be done to put an agenda or platform into in, in place. So, so when you say that they were caught flat-footed and, and Walker lost because Senate didn't have a, a clear vision for the country. No, Mitch McConnell has a clear vision. It's anti-American worker. It's anti-American family. It's pro-corporate America. It's pro-globalism. It's pro-American imperialism. And that he can't say that and win elections. That's why we need a transfer of leadership. That's why we need people like Mitch McConnell gone. That's why I was such an advocate for Blake Masters. I thought Masters could be one of the trailblazers along with J.D. Vance. I mean, I never thought Herschel Walker was going to be a trailblazer. I don't think anybody did. I never thought Dr. Oz was going to be a, a trailblazer. I thought Blake Masters and J.D. Vance could be trailblazers that created an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, anti-American imperialism political movement that, that gave us some intellectual underpinning that we could go to the next phase. Maybe it includes Trump. Maybe it doesn't. Personally, I think it's better with DeSantis. That's just me personally. We can debate that from now until 2024. I still think DeSantis is the guy that can foster, nurture, shepherd some of these ideas and principles that I think make the Republican Party more appealing, more attractive, uh, and, and a better political movement. But, but to suggest that Mitch McConnell didn't know what he was doing, and Mitch, I mean, he may be out of touch. I mean, he may not be as good at Twitter and TikTok and, and Facebook as many other young policymakers, but, but Mitch McConnell knows exactly how Washington works, and he knows how to work Washington. And he knew that the political agenda he's in favor of was not going to sell in, in Republican primary voters or, or the general public for that matter. I mean, independent voters, look at the polling on, on independent voters, very much in a line with America first. African-Americans, very much aligned with America first. Hispanics, very much aligned with America first. That's kind of the overriding narrative. It's America first against everybody else. And you've got the far left you know, weaponizing government in certain ways. You've got the far right weaponizing government in certain ways. You've got the military industrial complex weaponizing government in certain ways. You've got the entitlement and you know, kind of the entitlement government complex weaponizing in certain ways. And then you've got an America first movement who simply wants the American worker and the American family to be as the priority of America. I mean, that's a pretty bizarre thought, isn't it? That when you go to Washington, your priority should be the American worker and the American family. Wow. How, how crazy is that, Mitch McConnell? 
How crazy is that, Mitt Romney? But no, you've sold your soul, not to the American worker, not to the American family, but rather corporate interest, the, the imperialistic interest, the interventionist interest. I mean, I'm not saying they're one of the same, but there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. And uh, well, when I read that, I was kind of chuckled. You know, okay, you, you believe Mitch McConnell didn't have an agenda. <laughs> Absolutely has an agenda. He just knows the people he need to vote for him in Kentucky and across the country don't buy in to that uh, agenda. See, Mitch McConnell's agenda is establishment-oriented. So he knows that if a Chuck Schumer is in charge of the Senate, it's better than somebody like J.D. Vance being the majority leader. Despite having the same party, they don't have the same ideology. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I'd held something. I thought we'd get to it today. We have not. We'll do it tomorrow. Um, do want a programming note real quick. We're not doing a live show on Friday. So we'll be um, uh, five more minutes here today. Tomorrow and Thursday will be recorded on Friday. We're off the following week. So get all of your fix in tomorrow and Thursday when we um when we center ourselves on on American politics. Um, you know, this is not the hardest job I've ever had when it comes to manual labor. I'm an in truck body manufacturer and I wore steel toed boots, but it's exhausting. I mean it really is. And it's um especially when you live in a in a world of negativity. And somebody's out to get somebody else and you're reading about it, you know, two and a half, three hours every day. This article is about the Democrats suck. This article is about the, the Republicans suck. And then you read a news or you watch a um, an hour's worth of news. And that hour says every Republican's the Antichrist. And then you turn it and, you know, the other side says every. And I mean, it, 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 it wears on you. It really and truly does. And, um, and it's, you know, politics is a is a sport of conflict. And, uh, and confrontation, it just is. I mean, I believe my ideas are best. You believe your ideas are best. And we're asking the public to judge accordingly. And that is a very confrontational world. And it, 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 it wears on you. It really and truly does. Um, I told Rev earlier this week, uh, that'd be the end of last week, um, that I wanted to go online and shop. You know what I mean? I, I want to go to Amazon.com or, uh, you know, AceHardware.com or, or PepsiCola.com, some of our sponsors. I'm going to go on their website and, and have some fun, shop for the family. But but I catch myself, you know, going to Politico.com or TheHill.com or TheWallStreetJournal.com or the New York Times.com. And when you go there, th- there's an opinion and a counter opinion. And it just, I mean, it, it, I mean, I'm saying it wears on you, but it does. I mean, it grinds you down at some point in time. So the reason we take a week off during Christmas and a week off at the 4th is just kind of step away from that and, um, and just kind of remove yourself from any of that intense competition about who gets to lead the country, uh, which direction should they be leading, leading the country. I mean, I, I'll level with you. Um, my support of Trump is twofold. First, I thought he was a real good president. I mean, I didn't care much for his antics at time, and his personality is not something I'm real fond of, but I thought nuts and bolts, he was a good president. And he's real good for business. I mean, he's good for radio. I mean, he's good for talk radio in particular. He's an entertaining, interesting, controversial, consequential figure. And anytime a person like that is the center of political debate and discourse, it's going to make my job a lot easier. I joked around when Trump announced he was running for president, I had kind of a ritual. I mean, I studied during the day and I read articles and I talked to people. And then about eight or nine, I would compile them in some manageable fashion. 
And when I get to the studio at 5 o'clock the following morning, I mean, I've kind of got my content laid out. Unless a caller, you know, calls in and lights up a conversation and it organically grows from there, spontaneously grows. But when Trump was running, I mean, I'd wake up and he would have tweeted something at 2 o'clock in the morning that was the game changer. I mean, it was like, we can't talk about all these other things because Trump said this at 2 o'clock in the morning. But it was so refreshing to hear a guy who would say whatever it was on his mind. Now, I'm not saying that's good, and, and I understand that's not very presidential. I mean, you got to be careful when you say those sorts of things. I get it. I mean, I understand it. But, um, you know, we'll have a lot of fun next year. And, and the reason I'm talking about next year is we've only got tomorrow and, and Friday, excuse me, tomorrow and Thursday, and then we're off until until next year. And I'm telling you, I mean, it's presidential campaign. I mean, it really and truly is. I told you, um, DeSantis has already hired people. I don't know if he's running or not. Haley's already hired people. I don't know if she's running or not. I mean, these people will gain valuable information over the next, what, 45, 60 days. They'll report back, and that's when someone will pull the trigger or not, and DeSantis will get in or not. Haley will get in or not. Pompeo will get in or not. Pence will get in or not. And um, so we better be ready when we get back in 2023 for a ensuing presidential campaign. The oddity of this is an incumbent who may or may not run again. You know, the Biden dynamic. I mean, it, it's kind of confusing. Is Joe Biden going to run again or not? Can the Demo- do, the, do the Democrats have a bench to replace? Is Gavin Newsom really electable? I mean, is there another Democrat that has a better chance to win in 2024 than a 80, what, 82-year-old Joe Biden who'll be 80? I mean, are we, are we going to live in, in a country where an 86-year-old man is president? Maybe. You know, the, the people will decide that in, uh, in due time. So those are some kind of interesting conversational points and pieces that I think we can engage in um, after the first of the year. But, um, but yeah, we'll be live on the air tomorrow, live on Thursday, um, recording on Friday. I got to run my, my legislators down and convince them to come in Thursday instead of Friday. And then we're off the next week. Um, we, can, we can step away from the combative world of American uh, politics. Enjoy your day. Stay safe. We'll talk uh, tomorrow.